You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What I feel this evening is not very clever. It's the very opposite of emptiness. The corny old phrase is the only one I know to say it. My heart is full. With a full heart, with all of it, I thank you. Well, that's the car. What was left of it after the accident, if it was an accident. The car was meant to be a present. Before he changed his mind, Jake Hannaford was going to give it to the young leading actor of his last movie, John Dale. Hannaford's supposed to have saved him at some earlier date from committing suicide. Or so the story goes. Most of Hannaford's admirers are certain he did not intend to drive his car off that bridge that night. A corny ending, they say. J.J. Hannaford would never be guilty of that. There are other opinions. John Houston, Peter Bogdanovich, Oya Kodar, Robert Random, Lily Palmer, Edmund O'Brien, Cameron Mitchell, Mercedes McCambridge, Norman Foster, Dennis Hopper, Paul Stewart, Susan Strasberg, Tony O'Selwert, Claude Chabrol, Stefan Audran, Paul Mazursky, Henry Jaglum, George Jessel, John Carroll, Benny Rubin, Peter Jason, Gregory Sierra, Dan Tobin, and Curtis Harrington. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. And the wind cried, Mary. Also with us this week is our old friend, Andrew Rausch. Hey, I'm pleased to be back on. Thank you very much. My third time, hopefully third time's a charm. We're kicking off Maudie May this week with a discussion of Orson Welles' Other Side of the Wind, a film some 50 years in the making and has yet to be completed and released. The film stars John Huston as Jake Hannaford, an aging film director who's working on an artsy-fartsy film to try to stay relevant with New Hollywood, you know, for kids. Most of the film takes place on Hannaford's 70th birthday, where he's surrounded by sycophants, critics, friends, and former friends. Populated by a star-studded cast, the film is a treatise on filmmaking, aging, and machismo. Over the next little bit, we'll talk about what we know about the film and why it's something worth discussing 30 years after Wells' death. We usually begin discussions by asking our guests when they first saw the film and what they thought about it, uh, but in this case, that's not really possible. So, Andrew, I will ask you, when did you first hear about The Other Side of the Wind? Around the time Citizen Kane really became super relevant again, around uh, 98, when that AFI list came out and it was ranked in the, the number one film, I went through a period where I really studied a lot of Orson Welles, and, and I heard about the film then, but you know, only knew the very little that was out there at that time in passing. Then in 2003, there was an article in Cineast Magazine about cinematographer Gary Graver, and it had his contact information in there, and I thought, i got to contact this guy, and it was through Gary that I really learned about the other side of the wind. Well, I didn't know about this one, but it's pretty legendary that Wells had a bunch of films, mostly between, I'd say, the late 50s and the early 80s, that he tried to work on and never completed. And I remember seeing, or they were like edited by other people, and, you know, it was kind of like, is this part of the canon? Is this not part of the canon? And I remember the first one I saw of those was when I worked at Thomas Video and I saw Chimes at Midnight. And uh, I don't even know if that was the the authentic version or not. I don't think I was hip to Other Side of the Wind until I think we had Peter Bogdanovich on. And we were talking about uh, St. Jack with him. 
and all of the connections, obviously, between Peter and Orson Welles. And I think he talked a little bit about working on that and then how this how St. Jack came to be. And if you're interested in St. Jack, you should see the film and it's great. And you should listen to that episode because Peter Bogdanovich is a fascinating uh, guy to talk to. I think it was that. And then I started to look around and go online and read stuff. And it became this, um, I'd say, minor obsession of a film that we had yet to see because there were little bits of it here and there. And uh, it just sounded so huge and all of the different things that are attached to this film and why it hasn't come out yet. It sounded more fascinating than when Universal took Touch of Evil away and recut it. And then they eventually tried to reconstruct it and put that out. I was just like, wow, this is even crazier. Yeah, poor Orson Welles. I mean, we talked a lot on the Magnificent Ambersons episode about his career and just how he had so many bad breaks when it came to so many of his films. I mean, Magnificent Ambersons was his second studio film, and already things had started to go wrong for him. And then films that he made, he wasn't necessarily happy with what had happened. I mean, with Macbeth, there was this whole thing about the accents and redubbing the voices and just all of these things over the years. And Other Side of the Wind... I have to say, I really wasn't that familiar with it until quite a few years ago when we did our episode on The Day the Clown Cried. And then somebody had said, oh, well, you should do a April Fool's episode about Other Side of the Wind, as if you had seen that film. And I was like, I remember hearing about Other Side of the Wind, but I'm not exactly sure why. And then I kind of started looking around and started to kind of see some articles here and there. I mean, this was... 2011 so as Andrew mentioned that renaissance of Kane had already kind of come about and the reappreciation of Wells had really started the touch of evil recut had come out so there were these articles and books and things about Wells where you could kind of start to glean some information about other side of the wind and that was the thing too like you said Rob there were little pieces of the film that were out there and not exactly sure how all this kind of stuff got released. I know for sure there was a AFI tribute to Wells way back when, when he was obviously still alive and still working on Other Side of the Wind, which started filming in 1970, kind of wrapped around 76, and then the film just fell into this legal morass that we will hear about later as we start talking about the film. But yeah, so he had little clips out there from that. There were clips out from the film and things like um, Orson Welles, the one-man band, and working with Orson Welles, the Gary Graver documentary, where you got a little bit more of Other Side of the Wind. And obviously we don't have a complete version, and what's out there really in totality only runs about, as far as I could tell, about an hour. So, yeah, not bad. I mean, an hour out of... Maybe a two-hour film. Not really sure how this thing is going to cut together, but that's kind of the fascination with this movie, is that we get these glimpses, but we never get the whole piece. And hopefully one of these days, we will. What I've seen is was the bit that you sent me, and I think that it was maybe an hour and a half, hour and 45, and it seemed to repeat itself. Because I was watching it, I'm like, didn't I just see this? And I'm like, yeah, I did. But it opens with that AFI tribute bit that you were talking about. And I wasn't quite sure what that award show was, but it was, it felt like somewhere in the mid 70s, 
it's Orson on stage and he's talking about, you know, thank you for this. It means a lot to me. He's very, you know, he gets kind of choked up about the fact that he's been given this, like, I guess, Lifetime Achievement Award or something. It talks about, like, why film and why it matters and what he does and why it matters. This honor I can only accept in the name of all the Mavericks. Maverick may go his own way, but he doesn't think that it's the only way or ever claim that it's the best one, except maybe for himself. And don't imagine that this raggle-taggle gypsio is claiming to be free. It's just that some of the necessities to which I am a slave are different from yours. As a director, for instance, I pay myself out of my acting jobs. I use my own work to subsidize my work. In other words, I'm crazy. (laughs) But not crazy enough to pretend to be free. But it's a fact that many of the films you've seen tonight could never have been made otherwise. Or if otherwise, well, they might have been better. But certainly they wouldn't have been mine. The truth is, I don't believe that this great evening would ever have brightened my life if it weren't for this, my own particular contrariety. And then there are these clips. It seems to be that that bit that you sent me, which is probably the best stuff that we could find, feels like it's from some sort of Spanish documentary. Because there are points where there's this voiceover that I think is Spanish basically going by my my rusty old high school Spanish. That's I, I couldn't quite figure out exactly what they were saying in the voiceover, but I, I knew it had something to do with the film. Having seen the, uh, you know, the footage, and I know this is an unpopular opinion, I know that there's a film within the film, but I don't necessarily feel like it at all. I, I, I'm curious to see how it cohesively could go together to become one film. It feels like pieces of different avant-garde films, almost like pieces of a collection of avant-garde student films. They're very well made, the pieces. I'm just, I'm not 100% convinced that they can be pieced together in a way that is coherent and plays like one movie with a singular rhythm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I got that as well. And that's the thing that's really kind of a nice coincidental irony about this film is that supposedly the film is about a film that isn't completed. And therefore, the other side of the wind is a film that isn't really completed either. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how the art itself reflects back on the fact that this film has been held back for almost forty years and has never been done done. And then the other aspect of it, when I was looking at the cutting, and especially when you look at the party scene, because there's really like three big scenes from what I remember you sent me, Mike. One is two guys in a screening room and they're watching footage and they're talking back and forth about the director Hannaford. There's the scene that seems to be the film within the film, which is Ojakoda and this uh, actor and this like simulated sex scene, and they're out at some barn or something, um, from what I can tell. But the, the one that reminded me the most of this sort of avant-garde stuff that you were talking about is the piece that I think most people have seen, if they're interested in finding it, is the birthday scene where – it's Peter Bogdanovich and John Houston and all of these extras, and there's all these multiple angles on the scene, and it's all cut. And what you learn is that they 
have this birthday party for them and they tell all their filmmaker friends to bring their cameras. So it's all this multi-format stuff. And what it felt like in the cutting, the only thing I can really compare it to that's also a Wells film is like some of the cutting in F for Fake in that it has this like fast cut and within the scene and shots within shots within the scene itself. So you're seeing it from this angle and that angle and you're over here. And it feels very loose in that way. It feels almost like a documentary more than a, a staged film, which were, you know, more formalist filmmaking of what we've seen with Wells in the 40s and in the 50s. The film kind of has this origin with Ernest Hemingway. And there's a lot of Hemingway-esque stuff that's happening in the movie. And our main character, who's played by John Huston, is kind of a stand-in for Hemingway, but also at the same time kind of a stand-in for Wells. And it's like this whole, as you were saying, art imitating life kind of thing with how hard drinking Houston was, how hard drinking his character is, how hard drinking Ernest Hemingway was. And going further back from the 70s when this movie was being made if you go even farther back to like uh the mazels had done a little documentary about orson wells and it was basically him telling the story of this movie that he had in his mind and it would become other side of the wind kind of based on some changes that were necessary as far as location and everything. This was when he was living in Spain for a while and probably doing some Don Quixote kind of stuff. And he's in Spain and he's talking about this uh, matador who they uh, describe as a James Dean type troubadour who sets himself apart from other matadors and from in front of an audience of wealthy art patrons and it's interesting to see that James Dean type character turn into this Bob Random, who was the actor that you were talking about in those scenes with Oja Kodar, who is kind of a rival of the director. And there's this whole thing about the director always having to sleep with his main actor's wife or girlfriend. And it's almost like he's sleeping with them in order to sleep with the the actor that he has in his films. And it's this weird kind of like latent homosexuality thing that's going on. And I know that there were all these accusations about Hemingway and, you know, was he just so macho because he was trying to cover up maybe some, you know, hidden proclivities, this kind of stuff. But it's so fascinating that so many things are just kind of bouncing around in this kind of weird funhouse mirror. I mean, it's it's not just one mirror. It kind of reminds me of the scene in uh, Citizen Kane where he's walking in front of those mirrors and he's just reflected back into infinity. That's how this movie feels to me is there's just so many layers and levels to it. I mean, even the whole thing of like this movie is set on, I want to say it's like july 7th or something i can't remember what the exact date was but it was the day that hemingway shot himself so it's like there are all these multiple connections going on and it's like you just can keep peeling back and just see more and more of what's real what's not real what's a commentary on something else this picture we're going to make is uh, against he men now our story is about a pseudo hemingway a movie director belongs to that uh, or that 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 league which in, in in Spain they call the macho that means very masculine muy macho muy yeah. macho with a lot of hair on the chest you see 
So the so the central figure in this story is a fellow with, you know, you can hardly see through the bush of the hair on his chest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was frightened by Hemingway at birth. And this fellow, uh, he's a tough movie director, was killed three or four extras in every picture. <laughs> Whatever the picture his pride that three or four of them die. That's, you know, that's his stuff. Full of charm. Everybody thinks he's great. So in our story, he's riding around, following a bullfighter and living through him. His ego. You know, he's become that lovely young fellow in the, in, in the beautiful costume, and that fellow's danger is his danger. That fellow's success is his, and so on. But he's become obsessed by this young man who has become, in a way, his own dream of him. He's been rejected by all his old friends. He's finally been shown up to be a kind of voyeur, a peeker, a, a second-hand guy, a fellow who lives off other people's uh, danger and death. There's a novel, a Hemingway novel, and Hemingway spent time in Spain. So there's all of this connection, even at that level, before they even created this, you know, Hemingway character with John Huston. That there's even an, even that connection and that brief little thing that you talk about with the Maisel's brothers. The other thing I also saw as uh, interesting, and and we'll see what the in- entire film is like when it comes out. If this is the case, it almost feels like a satire on New Hollywood because you have this old school director who has come to make a kids film, and what I mean by kids is like a youth picture, is what I'm led to believe from what I've read. And that almost sounds like when Michelangelo Antonioni came over and did Zabriskie Point. It almost seems like Wells is like making a commentary on these old guard directors who were doing, you know, great classical, you know, film work and are now, you know, trying to make the the, the cool hip LSD picture for the kids. Well, you know, Wells hated Antonioni. And something worth pointing out here, also, you brought up the latent homosexuality of the Hannaford character that is clearly based on Hemingway. And, you know, going back to the film The Spanish Earth, Wells and Hemingway had actually gotten in a fight and come to fisticuffs because Hemingway accused Wells of being homosexual. I never belonged to his clan because I made fun of him. And nobody ever made fun of Hemingway. Hmm. But I did. And he took it, but he didn't like me to do it in front of the, the club. We met in a projection of a movie which he had made and which he wanted me to narrate. And uh, he had written the commentary. This is many years ago. And uh, we hadn't seen each other. This is a dark projection room. And I was reading the text. And I said, is it really necessary to say this? Do you think wouldn't it be better to just see the picture? And things like that. And then I heard this growl from the darkness, you know? Some damn faggot who runs an art theater trying to tell me how to write narration and so on. So I began to camp it up. I thought, if that's what I'm dealing with, I said, Oh, Mr. Hemingway, you think because you're so big and strong and have hair on your chest that you started bullying me, you see? So this great figure stood up and swung at me. So I swung at him. Now you have the picture of the Spanish Civil War being projected on a screen and these two heavy figures swinging away at each other and missing most of the time. (laughs) The lights came up and we looked at each other and burst into laughter and became great friends. You know, I've always found that fascinating. And, you know, Joe McBride, who you've got on the show later on, in his book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, he actually goes the step as to say that perhaps 
Wells himself had homosexual, you know, homosexual tendencies or, or that were never acted upon or anything. I, I find the whole thing fascinating, though, you know, it stuck with Wells. It pissed him off enough that uh, years and years and years later, he writes this into this script. He obviously hated Hemingway. Hemingway was just this larger-than-life macho asshole, apparently. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. It keeps going. The more you dig, the more you get. The way that the Bogdanovich character is basically, it feels like in a lot of ways he's playing himself. I mean, the scene that we've talked a little bit about is them uh, at this birthday party, and at one point Bogdanovich, who's playing this uh, Otter Lake character, is talking to this critic who's based on Pauline Kale. It's played by, I think, Susan Strasberg. This is Mr. Hannaford's night. Let's save the questions for him, huh? You two are very close, aren't you? Yes, I'd like to ask you about that. Why? Come on, Otter Lake. Well, why do you think you have to Nobody be as rude as he is? Rude as you are, in print anyway. I liked your last yes. picture. No, I know that it was it was repetitive, but for what it was, it worked. Yeah. Well, she wasn't that kind to me in her review. Not that you did me too much harm. I mean, how much harm can you do to the third biggest grocer in movie history to make that much? How marvelous. Yes. Uh, did you know that when his own production company goes public, that your friend there stands to walk away with $40 million? Yeah, and she's going to say that I'm going to keep on writing that I, I, that I stole everything from you, Skipper. I'm never going to walk away from that. And it's funny, though, too, because he calls the Hannaford character Skipper, which was the nickname that Wells had for his uh, friend at Todd, who was named Skipper. So it's just kind of funny that there's even more to that. Yeah, I mean, Bogdanovich in here, when I saw it, I go, this is perfect, because the original casting, from what I understand, was shot, was Rich Little, the comedian right. and, and um, impressionist who I remember as an impressionist because during the Reagan era he used to do Ronald Reagan all the time but I was thinking to myself I'm like why would that even work I'm like Bogdanovich is perfect because he's a filmmaker he's talking about being a filmmaker and in this period in which you watch this scene that's him because he had picture show and he had paper moon and he was huge for a couple of years there in the early 70s. And then it was like he kept trying to go along and it just seems that, you know, his career never quite got back up to that level. You know, I don't know if it was either through his own moves or studio or whatever, but it's just fascinating to watch because when you look at it, you go, that is just, it, it, it's so reflexive. That's the thing that's interesting about watching just even this small little bits in this film, especially when we're talking about Bogdanovich. Gary Graver told me that one day, and he says in our book, Making Movies with Orson Welles, that one day Rich Little just said, yeah, I'm going home, and he just left. Apparently, Welles was really difficult to work with on this film, I will say that. Uh, I interviewed Peter Jason for Shock Cinema this year, and Peter Jason was also in the film, and Peter Jason said that Orson screamed through the entire movie. Like He said, you always wanted to be behind where Orson was at so he couldn't see you, or else he was going to scream at you. And he just would scream all the time. And I'm trying to remember who the actor was. One of the actors, uh, at the time when he left, uh, he shot his last scenes, was very polite, and Orson had apparently been hateful to him throughout the entire shoot. And then uh, on his last day, he said, uh, if you've got any more questions or you need anything else, get a hold of my agent. Tear of Peking, China! And then he leaves. And... Uh, Apparently, Orson was, you know, he, he treated this film as our film and involved everybody in it, but apparently he was uh, quite the screamer and he wanted to see on his good side. 
I've heard different things. You know, I've heard that if you're in his good graces, you were kind of captivated. You know, like he was kind of the flame that would draw in all the moths kind of stuff. But I can see him being very difficult to work with it as well. And especially for a movie that took six years to shoot. I mean, and you mentioned Graver. I know that you have a connection with Graver. I mean, the film kind of ate up Graver's life. It did, and you know, Graver worked basically for free for all of those years because he had a trust in Wells, and apparently, you know, Wells had a trust in him. They were very close confidants. I will point out that Graver is actually in the film in a couple of places. There are places in the film where actors had to stand in for other actors because Wells didn't have them anymore. And if Wells is able to pull this off, was able to pull this off in editing, this was going to be amazing um, because there were conversations that were had between characters that were shot six months apart or years apart in different locations, but uh, Graver actually stood in for Bob Landham in one of the sex scenes, and you know, had to, he said it was very awkward, he had to get naked and pretend that he was having sex with Oya Kodaran, so there's no doubt that Wells asked a lot of his cameraman, you know, it's not every day that they ask the cameraman to get naked and, you know, grind on a beautiful woman, but it's, uh, you know, it was a very awkward moment, Gary said. Well, not a, not just grind on a beautiful woman, but grinding on a beautiful woman who happens to be his girlfriend. Like he right. was with her at the time, so like that adds an extra level of discomfort. Where it's like, yeah, okay, I got to do a sex scene, but not only am I do a sex scene with the director's girlfriend. So that kind of odd. Consider at this point, one can understand why he was may have been a little unhinged because his last probably solid release was maybe ten years earlier. I mean, what? Uh, the Trial? I mean, Chimes at Midnight came out, but it I mean, was kind of disembodied, too. I mean, he was doing other stuff, but his last like big theatrical film, I mean, had been maybe 10 years or more before. I mean, even Touch of Evil in 58 was kind of disembodied. I mean, he had a lot of problems with Mr. Arcotton. I mean, it just seems like every time this guy was doing something, there was always some sort of issue. And one can understand if you're going to put that much energy and effort into creating something and taking this much time on it, you might be a little upset or you might be a little uh, focused to the point of obsession. You know, I hate to say this about such a, you know, a, a legend, an iconic figure as well, but it does appear that, you know, he brought a lot of the problems onto himself. I mean, he did leave Ambersons. He did leave. There were several projects he just left undone for other people to finish or movies that he shot for Don Quixote, he shot for 20 years with three different cinematographers. And I, I, I take nothing away from him. I don't know if he was afraid you know, on some level that he was never going to be able to accomplish what he had once, you know, it appeared that he was going to be able to accomplish. I mean, when you shoot Citizen Kane at 25, where do you go? But, uh, you know, and I don't even know that it's the fear that he was just working on too many things at one time. But it's always appeared to me that some of the problems he sort of brought on himself. That was one of the psychological things. I remember when we got into this before, it may have been on the Ambersons episode, Mike, where we did talk about that with someone, where they were like, you know, probably part of the reason why he never finished all this stuff was out of a deep sense of fear that if he did finish something, it wouldn't measure up to his other work, and therefore it would be even a bigger disappointment, not only to himself, but to uh, people who appreciated him. Well, and it's during this time, too, you talked about you know shooting Citizen Kane when you're 25. It's at this point in the early 70s when Pauline Kael uh, publishes an article claiming, basically, that Wells didn't co-write the script for uh, for. 
king and that he is the emperor. He has no clothes. And just the vicious and vitriolic attack that she kind of laid on him over Cain and just calling him a fraud and really, you know, basing most of her stuff on what Wells is pretty much sworn enemy John Houseman had to say about it. We talked about that relationship in our um, rollerball episode a little bit ago, but yeah, just basing everything on Houseman and his uh, lens of things and interviewing people and then just not using any of their quotes in her article, anything that might have debunked her theory about Wells not having done the work on Kane that he is said to have done. So that's one of the reasons why this Susan Strasberg character is in the film or the character she plays, Juliet Rich, is in the film as this kind of... Um, I don't know, uh, whipping post because Kale has, was trying to, uh, you know, was out for blood when it came to what Wells was doing. And Bogdanovich, you know, kind of came in and, uh, wrote a really scathing response to what she had done, but still that kind of stuck. There were um, a lot of years where it was, did Orson Wells really, write this did he really do what he was said to have done with with Kane and you know trying to take that away from him which is just such a terrible thing because that was the one thing for sure that he could kind of put up on his mantle literally with the co-writing Oscar and she was trying to rip that out of his hands well I mean he basically had two things in his early go that put him on the map in people's minds first obviously was War of the Worlds and second was Citizen Kane. So, you know, those two right there, It's uh, those are kind of the twin towers that uh, <laughs> cast their shadow heavy over the rest of his career. Andrew, do you want to talk about the Oscar that he gave to Graver? Yeah, there's a lot of dispute over what exactly happened, you know, how it came to be. But at some point, Orson Welles gave his Oscar to Gary Graver. And now, different people have alleged that it was given to him just to hold on to, which is kind of weird. But uh, and then Gary, you know, swore, and Gary's wife, you know, uh, told me the same thing before she passed away, that uh, Orson had given it to him as a gift, and Orson gave him a lot of things as gifts. He gave him, you know, he had like one of those magic tables where you saw the woman through the table, and, and Gary had that in his living room, and, uh, you know, all these great props and things, but, uh, you know, and then years later, Wells' daughter found out that Gary tried to sell the, the Oscar, which is probably kind of unfortunate, but yeah, he tried to sell the Oscar. I, apparently he had uh, some money issues, and uh, the daughter stepped in and sued him and took the Oscar back. So it's an interesting story. What about it is 100% true? Nobody knows because they weren't there. Gary was my friend, so I'm obliged to you know go with Gary's story, and Gary was a very, very sweet man, but there's no doubt that Orson loved Gary as much as Gary loved him, and I think that's really saying something, because Orson Welles doesn't seem like a man who gave away his love and trust very easily. Definitely seems like he had been in situations where he tried to put stock in people and then maybe felt like he was being betrayed. And I can see that with some of the you know film execs that he had put stock into, some of the actors and just folks around him. And then, you know, if they didn't kind of pull through for whatever reason he would you know just kind of disown them and i know there was a famous falling out between he and bogdanovich that happened years later and just in which was much more around the the saint jack episode um you know that we talked about before 
he seemed to have believed in Graver all the way. But it's funny because of this whole idea of all these different stories that are around this. And there's a terrific book, and we'll be talking to the author of the book later, Josh Karp, who wrote this book, uh, Orson Welles' last film. And so many different perspectives on some of the exact same stories. And there's uh, accusations of one of the backers not giving money, or there's this middleman who didn't give the right funds from one backer to Wells, and he claimed that he gave all this money. Was that really the case? Was it not? And just, I mean, so many of these instances, and of course we're dealing with something that's, you know, 40-some years in the past. Everybody has their own recollection. Everybody had their own recollection at the time, though, it feels like. And so there's just like this kind of Rashomon thing happening, you know, to make another film reference. And it's appropriate that for this film, we have all these different lenses and we're seeing Hannaford and all these characters through all of these different lenses. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the editing style for this. And, you know, there's the two very distinct editing styles. There's the art film, the Antonioni, as we've talked about, that's going on, the film within the film, and then the Hannaford stuff outside of the film, which to me, that was the most shocking stuff the first time I watched some of these clips. Once I kind of got into it, I got used to it and was able to accept it, but man, I can see where it might put somebody off just kind of walking in cold and seeing like that birthday scene. It is uh, really a great experiment in editing. Some of it feels like Tony Scott done better than Tony Scott. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it was the, the intercutting really preceded the MTV style of, uh, you know, and it's interesting for a guy like Wells at his age as he's parodying old directors trying to use new techniques. You know, he's doing it himself, basically. But from the scenes that we've seen, I think he pulls them off pretty well. Looking at it and you saying it being MTV style, that was one of the things I put down in my notes because that that party scene, like we've discussed, that, that one with all the multiple formats and how it cuts between here and this and this, like it, it's totally different from all of the other setups and editing that we're used to with his earlier work. Like his earlier work is much more, you know, classically set. And then, like I said, the only thing I can compare it to that's a, a total film is F for fake because it's the only one that goes in that kind of style and is willing to like break the traditions and of, of that time. It really is a interesting thing to watch. I wish there was a better version of it. I'm sure it looks nicer and you can figure out at times what's going on a little bit more. Uh, if it was a cleaner uh, image. And that's the one thing that was kind of holding me back sometimes. I'm kind of like, it's a little murky. What am I looking at? I got lucky. I think the version that I got to see was was the clearest version there is. And those were owned by Graver. You know, and I remember the day that he sat me down and he screened this footage for me. I felt like, oh my God, I'm watching the Holy Grail, you know. And I didn't really know what the hell it was I was seeing. And they don't play together like one film, as I said. But, uh, you know... But I knew that I was witnessing something that was different and something that was extraordinary, especially for 1976. I think that editing style, too, also is going to help when it comes to the whole idea of stitching together all of these disparate scenes that were shot over a period of six years. I mean, it was funny, you know 
Robbie brought up F for Fake, and I can definitely see that. But it was interesting kind of comparing it to even uh, filming Othello, the little documentary about Othello that we watched for the Othello episode, and how he was kind of cutting himself in as the question asker to McLeamore and I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but just – the way that he was cutting himself in with these guys and they're obviously in one interview, he's, you know, shooting this other stuff himself, probably actually shot by Graver if memory serves and just, uh, how he's, you know, using editing to tie these things together. And he does that a lot with F for fake. And I can see him really doing that with this film is being able to use those quick cuts and those flashes of image in order to help tie together things that were shot in 1970 with things that were shot in 1976. I mean, there's the whole thing of, you know, Bogdanovich actually plays two characters in the film. He plays a film critic along with uh, Joe McBride, who we'll hear in just a moment here, and then also plays Brooks Otterlake. And I don't think that they really had that much of a care for it. I think that they were going to double up with the original character that Bogdanovich was playing, and the rest they could do. You know, you mentioned, Andrew, the whole idea of Graver doubling for Bob Random. There was going to be so much doubling, or there was so much doubling of these characters and just, you know, backs of heads or parts of bodies and just kind of the suggestion that these things are happening at the same time. I mean, you only had John Houston for a little bit of time. It wasn't like he was there for six years. I mean, the guy was cranking out movies the entire while. So you shot this whole movie around a character who you only had for a limited amount of time. And then it was a matter of what could Wells get away with when it came to shooting around him and getting these schedules to work. And, you know, I think there were only a few people that were there constantly, Graver being one of them. And just, you know, sometimes people would drop in, fall out. And what could you do in order to make this movie work? And ultimately, the question I think we're going to ask ourselves is, will this movie work at all? Well, that's the thing that's funny about him filling in for other roles is reminds me of, uh, obviously, a local boy and Sam Raimi and his use of the quote-unquote fake shemp, where he would get people and shoot backs of their heads or various things to stand in for characters that had disappeared during the shooting. I mean, mostly of Evil Dead and the original Evil Dead. So it, it's kind of interesting. That, uh, it'll be, it'll, we'll see if it's as seamless, I think, at times as what Sam was able to do by you know, dressing up his little brother and putting him in certain scenes. All right, so let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with our old friend Joe McBride, the author of Whatever Happened at Orson Welles, after these brief messages. Howdy, folks. Got blood, violence, freaks of nature. You've come to the right place. My name is Gary, and I'm your guide to Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode, we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet. All right, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. You're slapped. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, Take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. 
so join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sin Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Join the geek revolution and save the galaxy. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Want to know more? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Listen to Weeby Geeks podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or online at WeebyGeeks.net. Weeby Geeks, your voice for the Geek Revolution. Want to know more? Tell me about the first time that you ended up meeting with Orson Welles. Yeah, well, I was uh, 19 when I started writing my first book on him, which was called Orson Welles, and it was published in 1972 by the British Film Institute. It was a critical study in the Cinema One series, which was a very good series of uh, uh, you know works on different directors and genres and things. And I was uh, I started in 1966. So I had the book almost finished by 1970. I was working on, already on a book on John Ford with Michael Willington, which finally came out in 1974. So I had made plans to uh, come to Hollywood to interview John Ford. I had talked him into doing an interview, which was unusual, and I was very excited. He's my favorite director of all time, and he's also Wells' favorite director. And so I flew to Hollywood in August of 1970, and um, I didn't think that Wells was in the country. Uh, this was a time when Wells was kind of out of the public spotlight, as far as we knew in America, at least, and you wouldn't hear much about him. The only way to sort of track him was to look in variety in small pieces where they would say he's in Zagreb doing some dubbing or something or, you know, some kind of obscure items like that. Uh, I've been publishing chapters of my book in magazines like Film Quarterly and Sight and Sound, and I've been sending those issues to his attorney in New York, uh, Arnold Weisberger. It's the only way I knew how to possibly get a hold of Wells, and I never heard back from them, so I didn't assume that, that he had read them, but he had been reading them, it turned out. And uh, so when I got to Hollywood... I had my appointment with Ford. I was uh, an admirer of Peter Bogdanovich. I had seen Targets at the 19, in 1968 at 
I was at the Chicago convention, Democratic convention, protesting, and took a break to see Targets downtown with a very small audience, and was very impressed with uh, this terrific debut film of his. Also, he was doing the kind of thing things that I was doing, but he had done it before me, and he was interviewing a lot of famous directors, and I was kind of um, modeling my career uh, partly on his, you know, as somebody who who would get these interviews and get to know these directors. And but he had he had already done his book on John Ford and and uh, all this. So I called him, uh, got his phone number from. Larry Edmonds bookshop, Milt Lubavisky, who was the proprietor, um, gave me his phone number. So I called Peter and uh, he said, uh, I'm on the other line with Orson. Could you hold on? So I was really stunned. And he came back a couple minutes later. He said, Orson would like to uh, have you call him. And he gave me a phone number and he said, call him tomorrow at this time. And I was really kind of floored and I didn't realize Wells was in Hollywood. And so then we, uh, Peter and I chatted, and uh, uh, I, I made an appointment to go see him at his house, which I did before I met Wells. I went to Peter's house for an evening, and he was very generous in sharing his information on Wells and Ford, because there were a lot of mysteries at that time surrounding both of them, and he cleared up most of the mysteries. And uh, so I called Wells, and he said, we're about to start shooting a film. Would you like to be in it? That was the first thing he said. And I was really kind of amazed because I wasn't an actor, had never acted before, unless you count being an altar boy for three years as a Catholic kid, which is a form of theater. So I, all I could think of saying was a kind of a stupid question. I said, is this going to be a feature-length film? Because I couldn't imagine I would be in a feature film by Orson Welles. And he laughed and said, well, we certainly hope so. And it turned out to be not such a stupid question in the long run because it's, you know, it's still not a feature-length film. We certainly hope so. Anyway, so he said, uh, come see him. And so uh, he invited me to his home. He had been running a home in Beverly Hills. And so that Friday I went to his home had lunch with him and we talked for about three hours and it was a very wide-ranging talk where I was able to ask him all kinds of questions about his work and it was very interesting and he was very cordial and when I walked in he had uh, a book of mine on his mantelpiece Persistence of Vision which I'd also sent because it had a section on him I'd written pieces on Ambersons and Kane and Chimes of Midnight he said finally I meet my favorite film critic so I was completely Florida, this was like a Walter Mitty experience for, for a young film buff. I was only 23. But that week I met Ford, Wells, and Renoir, uh, and Peter Bogdanovich. So I met my three favorite directors and Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, and also I had a, I tried to get a hold of Hitchcock, and he had called my hotel and said he I could come see him, but the hotel screwed up and I didn't get the message, so I could have met Hitchcock that week too. So I kind of thought every week in Hollywood is going to be like this, and I, <laughs> I didn't realize this was this was kind of the pinnacle, and you know, this is the ultimate week that I ever had. So by Sunday, I was acting in the Wells film, The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, he started shooting that Sunday, and then I went home to Wisconsin, and I came back about a year later he called me back for more shooting and then I moved to California and he would call me back periodically for more shooting we did a lot of shooting it went on for six years and so I was in this film for six years the one thing that I seem to hear whenever people talk about Orson Welles was that he had this air about him and was able to kind of bring you into his world and make you kind of almost like a co-conspirator is that what your 
feeling was when you were working with him? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good description. Although, uh, since, you know, I'm a critic and I was, the book was almost finished, I added a chapter about working with him. But I always, you know, want to maintain my critical distance in, in a sense from the subject as well. You know, it's it's a balancing act in a way when you're acting in a film for somebody and then you're writing a critical study of him. But if you read that book, you know, I'm critical of a number of the films. And over the years, I've gotten less critical of a couple like Macbeth. I didn't like much at all, but that was the chopped up and, and redubbed version that was in circulation at the time. Since then, they've restored it, so I, I now think it's a really terrific film. But I've never been particularly high on Othello, for example. So one time when we were shooting The Other Side of the Wind, I heard Wells in the other room saying to somebody, uh, Joe would like Christopher Plummer. He doesn't like my Shakespearean performances either. So I, I hastened over to his side, and I said, well, that's not really true. I said, uh, you know, I think your performance as Falstaff is your greatest performance in Chimes of Midnight. But I admit that I think you were miscast in Othello, and I think you were good in Macbeth, you know, but, you know, if you, if you criticize any of his performances, he he didn't like that. So it, it, it made for some prickly moments occasionally because I was not a, a yes man. I was a little in awe of him, I have to admit, when I first met him, but I was young and the whole world of professional filmmaking was new to me and he was a great idol of mine. But very quickly... Um, he, he seemed very human and very down-to-earth, and it was very exciting. And one thing that people say who worked for him, we all put up with all kinds of uh, long hours and hardships, and you know we didn't get paid, and uh, one thing or another. The reason people do that with Wells, no matter who they are, whether they're you know humble actors like me or or non-actor in my case, or great actors like John Gielgud or Jean Moreau or somebody like that, is that it's the greatest creative experience of your lifetime to work with them. And you know that when you're doing it, so you'll put up with an awful lot of hardship and sometimes uh, temperament. You know, he would, he could be temperamental. He was actually very nice to to the actors most of the time. He believed in being kind and warm toward the actors because he felt the actors are the most important people in a film and they're very sensitive creatures. Although... In my case, <clears throat> he was bullying for about three years. He wanted me to be kind of in this state of intimidation as I played a young film critic, historian, kind of a spoof of myself. And he, uh, since I was not an actor, he gave me all the line readings. I was grateful for that. And he very rigidly controlled my performance. He told me exactly how to move and where to move. And, and I, I didn't mind that because... It was a relief in a way because he was such a great director of actors. And, uh, but he did involve me in the writing of my part. There's a film you can see online that the Maisels brothers did of him in 1966 where he's describing the project that became The Other Side of the Wind. And he said he was going to do a uh, an experimental film in which the actors would sort of make up their own lines and help write the film and they were going to be playing versions of themselves. And he said it was something that hadn't been done before. And in my case, certainly he did that. We would talk for an hour or so before every scene that I was in, and, and he would say, what would you say here and what would you say there? And then I would give him some ideas, and then he would make them more comical or more absurd. And 
and then we kind of kicked him around and so we really collaborated on the dialogue and then he would write the final version of it and type it up and uh then i'd have to say it exactly i couldn't change things or improvise but so there was a sense of creative participation so um uh you did feel like a conspirator in a sense also these were guerrilla filmmaking tactics uh shooting on a shoestring, I mean, literally a home movie because he was working in his, in his home quite often. We worked in his studio for a while, but it was uh, really shoestring production. And, um, you know, there were great actors, uh, John Houston, Mercedes McCambridge, uh, Edmund O'Brien, all kinds of people, um, and a very good cameraman, Gary Graber. But the crew was all basically 19-year-old guys and a couple of women. and So it was quite a modely potpourri of people and uh, we all had this sense that we were doing something very special now you said it took six years for your part of the filming to be complete and i have to ask at the end of the six years how did you kind of know that it was complete well that's, that's a good question there was no moment when he said that's it folks uh actually it was not just my part but the whole shooting took six years and i was in uh the shooting until the very end and uh, although I wasn't in every phase of the shooting, I was—I I counted I was in 45 days of shooting over six years. Um, but it just all came to an end, and I don't know how we found out. I guess Gary Graver, who, who became a good friend of mine, the cameraman, uh, I was always getting information from him like, okay, that's it, and we've shot almost everything. And uh, there are only a couple shots that were not filmed uh, that still remain to be shot, those can be done with CGI or some other techniques. But it just sort of came to a stop. Wells would shoot uh, whenever he got money, and then you know, we wouldn't hear from him for a few months or a year or even, and, and then suddenly we got the word that more shooting was going to take place. There was a lot of shooting in the spring of 1975 at Peter Boganovich's home in Bel Air. Peter was off in Europe doing uh, Daisy Miller, and Wells kind of took over the house. And so almost every night after work at Variety, I'd go up there and he'd be shooting the film and he would find things for me to do in the film, which was wonderful. Tell me about your character, Mr. Pister. The character I play is a kind of buffoonish version of who I was back when I was a young cineast back in 1970. When I started, I was very earnest and I was very skinny and uh, young and naive and kind of intimidated by everything. Uh, although I was a newspaper reporter and I've been a journalist since 1960, so I actually was a strange mixture of kind of uh, intimidation by famous people in the film business, but I was asking tough questions, which I've been accustomed to be doing as a reporter. And so I would ask him and Ford and other people fairly blunt, tough questions. Sometimes I would get people uh, irritated with the questions. And that became part of the character as well. Um, so he may seem like a kind of a, a nebbish, but he's asking some really incisive questions. And there's one question. I'm supposed to be following John Houston around, who's the lead actor uh, in the film, playing Jake Hannaford, who's a legendary old Hollywood director who's kind of as well said, it's not him, but it's more like John Ford or Howard Hawks or Henry Hathaway, somebody like that, a kind of a macho old-time director who's fallen on tough times. 
And one reason Wells made the film was that he was bothered by the fact that in the new Hollywood of what we call the Easy Rider era, the old directors were having a hard time getting work. And it bothered me a lot, too, because I was very upset that you know Ford didn't get to make a feature film after Seven Women, and he tried for five years, for example. And you know, it was a real terrible thing that these people were shunted aside, and so that was part of the story. And uh, so I'm following Houston around asking him intrusive film buff questions, basically, and Wells was sort of working off some of his vexation with interviewers asking him either silly or penetrating questions. He didn't like either kind of question, and he would be pestered by, you know, a lot of interviewers, and uh, so it was kind of like a, you know, a duel between him and the interviewers. So Houston's character was sort of doing that to me. He was kind of trying to blow me off most of the time. And so I would ask him questions. For example, um, Wells told me actually the character was mostly modeled on Hemingway, which I figured out pretty quickly anyway, because uh, it started out called, it was called The Sacred Beasts. And he started writing that in 1961, right around the time Hemingway killed himself. And it was uh, back then, it took place in, uh, around the bullfights. And it was an old macho writer, apparently, uh, followed by uh, aficionados and, uh, you know, following the bullfights. And then he changed it to a movie director. And I knew that Hemingway's father had killed himself. And at the end of The Other Side of the Wind, uh, the, the Houston character basically kills himself. He drives off in a Porsche like James Dean and gets killed drunken in a drunken car crash. And so I thought I would ask uh, Hannaford if his father's suicide influences his film work, which is a very you know personal question. And Wells thought it was great, and he kind of twisted it around a little bit. I didn't realize at the time that Wells thought his own father had committed suicide, and he felt responsible for it. This came out later. His father basically drank himself to death. He was an alcoholic, and he died alone in a hotel room in Chicago. And Wells, had, who was a teenager at the time, had been persuaded by Roger Hill and his wife Hortense, who were his not exactly guardians, but they were, uh, Roger was the headmaster of his boarding school and they were taking care of Orson, who had a kind of difficult youth, you know. And they had persuaded Wells to ignore his father in what we now call tough love, you know, uh, leave him alone for a while and see if he'll shape up. And then he drank himself to death. So Wells wrote an article for French Vogue late in his life in which uh, it was supposed to be part of his autobiography where he said he had killed his father and he gave an interview where he said uh, he had always felt he had killed his father and he felt this terrible guilt and he said he didn't believe in psychiatry and the whole notion of getting over your guilt. He said you have to live with it and I didn't know any of this but this didn't deter Wells from putting this in the film and in the original scene that we shot, this question gets me thrown out of Hannaford's car as we're driving along. I'm interviewing him with a tape recorder, and I get tossed out of the car for asking this indelicate question. Although in the rough cut that I've seen, I get tossed out of the car for a different reason, but uh, we'll see how it turns out in the editing. Now, when you were first playing this character, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't 
Bogdanovich playing another critic alongside of you? Yeah, I was just reading the Wikipedia entry in the film, which I don't know who put this in there, but it's very detailed, and some of the details are wrong. They get one thing wrong about me. They say that uh, Bogdanovich was playing a critic, and then he became a famous director, and so he was recast as a famous director. And then I stepped into the role that he was playing. That's not true. What happened was the first day of shooting, Peter and I were both playing uh, film historians, critics, he was more. He was a little older than I was, and he was kind of slicker and all that. And he was supposed to be a guy who was doing a book with Hannaford, just like Peter was doing a book with Orson Welles, which later became This Is Orson Welles. And so he was a more ambitious kind of hustler type character. So he and I were like a comic team of bickering film historians, and he was casting the uh, the last picture show at the time. And he was about to go to Texas uh, to start shooting the film. And as we all know, that made him a famous director within about a year and a half or so, uh, or about a year even. And um, at that point, Wells started thinking of him differently because he became kind of more of a peer of Wells and became very successful at a time when Wells was struggling outside the system. So he recast Peter playing this hotshot young director whose uh, uh, whose mentor is Jake Hannaford. And it became this Falstaff-Hal relationship, which is reflected in a lot of Wells' films. As we know, it's often about, you know, it's a male friendship of two guys, uh, sometimes one who's older and more powerful and a younger one who's sort of his rival or friend or whatever is a conflicted relationship. And, Usually the younger man betrays the older man, and that's repeated in The Other Side of the Wind. And so Peter was playing that part. That part had been played by Rich Little, the Impressionist, and uh, I was in some scenes with Rich Little. So in the interim, this took a couple of years before Peter got the part, Little was doing every line in the voice of some uh, impression that he was doing, like, Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne or Cary Grant or whatever, which was a conceit that I thought wouldn't really work. It might be funny for one scene or two, but it wouldn't work for a whole film. And he was not, uh, I mean, he was a very, very talented comedian and impressionist, but he wasn't really an actor, you know? So I thought this is maybe not going to work. And then little left the film. There are conflicting versions of this, uh, one story is that he just showed up. Gary Graber told me he showed up on the set one day and he was carrying a suitcase and he said, well, it's been great working with you guys. I got to go. See you later. And he just walked off and uh, Gary and Orson were just sort of sitting there stunned. And in Rich Little's defense, uh, he had a lot of nightclub engagements and things and television contracts that he had to fulfill and he couldn't just sit around in Arizona forever and make this film. And um, so he wasn't abandoning them with, you know, uh, for no reason, but that's how Wells experienced it. And then there are other versions that Wells fired him. And I think Wells was secretly happy he left because his role wasn't working out. Uh, although he was a very nice fellow. So then he gives it to Peter, but uh, what happened then was we had to reshoot some of those early scenes that Peter and I had done, uh, and they cast uh, a guy named Howard Grossman, 
who was a production assistant on the film, to play uh, the part that Peter had played. So we redid the, all the scenes we did the first day, and some of them we didn't do over again, but uh, like the interview scenes in the car, we kept shooting those. We did those a couple times, and Houston was never in the car. And the way Wells shot his films after he left Hollywood was, uh, you know, there'd be eight people in a shot, six of them with their back to the camera, and that meant that only two of the actors were really there and everybody else was a stand-in. And Wells kind of loved to do that, but it was out of necessity. So he would film uh, us in the car and then later do some shots with John Houston driving the car, which became sort of a nightmarish joke in its in its own uh, right. This is one of the, the great stories of the film is that Houston hadn't driven a car since 1933, and he had run over a woman on Sunset Boulevard and killed her. He was acquitted, but apparently he had had a couple drinks. And so the the story was that MGM and his father had worked out a deal with the DA that Houston would leave the country for a year, and he would get off. And he never drove he never drove a car again. And I innocently once said to him, "How come you don't drive a car?" And he said, "Oh, I like, I like to drink too much." And so Wells said, John, you got to drive this car. And he said, well, okay, you know, he'd do anything for us. And so they got in the car as Wells, Houston, Gary Graver, somebody else, uh, and Larry Jackson, who was a PA. Who, I guess he was holding the sound equipment. He was hanging off the back of the car. And they, John Houston immediately drives the wrong way on a freeway. <laughs> and, they, you know, they were kind of swerving around the freeway. And Larry Jackson told Josh Carp, he said uh, he could see the obituary in the paper that, you know, Houston and Wells killed in car crash and Larry wouldn't even be mentioned in the in the story. Fortunately, Houston managed to drive off the road and they all survived. But that was one of the great stories of the film. But um, anyway, so we would do these scenes that are still still have to be kind of stitched together. That's one of the problems in the post-production. I think it'll all go together, but uh, it was all done. I mean, Othello was shot that way, for example. Mr. Arcotton, you know, this is not new for Wells to shoot things all over the place with different people in different locations and using doubles and stand-ins and things like that. How much of that, though, was in Wells's head versus actually being documented? It was pretty much all in his head. There was a script. Um, the first day of shooting, uh, we all, you know, as I said, we would talk through the scene and then he would type up some pages so you know we all just did some scenes with uh, it was just Peter and me and some extras doing some scenes I think we did 27 shots that day which is a lot of shots but when I came back a year later things were more organized and there was a shooting script that I was given that was mimeographed and everything and um, it didn't the film within the film which is an important part of the other side of the wind it's John Houston's character's film within the film that's unfinished and he's showing it at his birthday party uh the film takes place at his 70th birthday party and they're showing parts of his unfinished film to try to raise money to finish it so it's kind of a life imitating art or art imitating life situation that was not really described it would just say film within the film sequence here you know so that was uh either in wells's head or uh in some kind of script pages that I never got to see. 
but so much of it was in his head, and he was known for that anyway, that he could keep all the continuity and all the all the complicated shots in his head. He did that on Othello, which is a good analogy for this film because it took four years to shoot in different locations, different countries, and he would remember how the shots matched in terms of choreography and cutting and lighting and everything. And uh, I was there when he told the script girl not to talk to him on the other side of the wind. He actually had a script supervisor and she tried to correct him on some point as they do. And that's their job. And he barked at her, don't talk to me anymore. You know? And so she didn't talk to him about that stuff, but she was keeping notes and she continued on the film, Sally Stringer, and she was an important member of the crew. But so he, you know, he was doing it without a script supervisor, which is very unusual. It must've been, a little difficult for you. I mean, you come into this film at 19 and you're still shooting it when you're 25. Well, actually, I was 23 when I started. I started writing the book when I was 19, but I've been working on the book for four years, so I was 23 when I started. And then, uh, so I would have been, what, 29, I guess, when I did my last shooting for the film. And it all takes place in one day. So, yeah, it's, uh, I think you're going to ask about continuity there. That was part of the challenge. I was uh, growing a lot. And, uh, you know, the, I came back after a year the first time, and, and I walked in. I gained 25 pounds. I was very thin originally. And uh, uh, then I kind of filled out. And Wells said, oh, my God, he's matured. And uh, he thought it was funny. And he told me things like to wear, um, uh, to not shave on days when I shot so that my cheeks would look more hollow on camera. And that was a trick that I'm sure he used back in his youth, you know, to look, because uh, he always struggled with his, his weight. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I just tried to stay in character for, for all those years. One thing that was difficult was uh, when I went to Bogdanovich's home, the first week before I'd met Wells, I had been to a screening of Fellini's Terracon that afternoon. I ran out of paper and I still do this. It's a habit I have. I scribble notes on my wrist if I'm out of paper. And I think it goes back to my old newspaper days. And Peter thought this was very funny. I had stuff on my wrist and he thought he told Wells. And so Wells insisted that I write notes on my wrist. And we, we had a whole scene where we talked about that in the film, which, uh, Peter Peter's character was saying, "You have stuff on your wrist. What is that?" You know, and uh, so Wells said, "Write things like uh, mother fixation and Oedipus complex, and you know all the things that he thought serious critics would would say." And uh, so I had to keep doing that every day for six years. And then I remember the first day he was very paternal. He said, "You know, go in the bathroom and scrub your wrist and get all that stuff off your wrist." And, you know, like he was really micromanaging everything. And so I, every every time I came back, I had to put all that stuff on my wrist, which got kind of irritating after a while. You were also part of the small committee of people, or maybe you felt like an individual that were trying to help bring the film to fruition. What was your kind of role in that? Well, it was unofficial because, you know, I mean, Wells left till 1985. So there was nine years of his life where he was still shooting other films. The other side of the wind really is not his last film. He was shooting the dreamers and the magic show and other projects. And he finished one film after other side of the wind, which was filming Othello. It's a documentary played in theaters. And so he did a lot of work, while he was 
you know, the film was stymied at that point by legal and financial disputes. And so I wasn't obviously trying to interfere with that. But once he died, we all, you know, all the people who worked in the film put a lot of energy and love and care into the film. And uh, Gary Graver, the poor guy, I mean, he's, his whole life was wrapped around this film. He had dedicated everything to the film. I mean, he used to tell me, I'm still working for Orson. This is long after Wells had died. And he wasn't joking. He was actually working for Orson. He would be going to the lab and doing stuff. And so I would, uh, from time to time, when I met some producer uh, like Roger Corman, I worked for him and I said, you know, I, I steered Truffaut and Jean Moreau to Roger because he was releasing Bergman and Fellini. So I said to Truffaut, he was looking for a distributor for the story of Adele H. And I said, go with Roger Corman. So he did. And then I told Moreau and he picked up her film Lumiere. So I said to Roger, you're doing all these art films and getting Oscars. And he was very proud of them. And I said, how about the other side of the wind? You could finish it and get this thing out. And he said, well, I would love to. But I know that the day the film opened at noon, I'd be hit with three lawsuits, you know, from people claiming to own it. And unless that would be sorted out, I couldn't really get involved. And um, so I'd have these kind of discussions trying to get people interested, and it really didn't go anywhere. But um, in the 90s, I was thinking, well, somebody's got to do something. So I got a little more active. Touch of Evil had come out with the restored version. Uh, the producer, Rick Schmidlin, had this bright idea of taking Wells' 58-page memo that he wrote after seeing the Universal. They took the film away from him and recut it, and Wells wrote this fantastically detailed memo about how to improve the film, and they kind of ignored most of his suggestions, but Rick had this brainstorm. You could take the memo and try to implement the cuts. So he hired the great editor, Walter Murch, who's also a great sound editor, He's the person who, for whom the term sound designer was created on the conversation. And so Walter Murch, um, Universal got behind this, and uh, they made 50 changes, all based on the memo. They couldn't make every change because they have some of the footage that was cut out of the film because there was a preview version, but they don't have all the footage, and there is no director's cut that exists. So they, they improved it a lot, but they couldn't, you know, totally go back to whatever Wells' cut might have been. But anyway, the film did very well, got great reviews, and it made a couple million dollars at the box office. So suddenly there was a precedent that an old Orson Welles film could make money if it was restored. And here was a an old film, you know, old in the sense that it was made some years before, but it was un released and it's you know it seemed like a no-brainer to me to have the people were restoring the wild bunch or things like that and uh why not restore a film that had never been seen except in fragments so suddenly people got interested and gary had been trying for years to get people to do things with the film and he had put together a rough cut of sorts it was about 95 minutes long and Rough cut is maybe not a good word for it. It was more like an assembly of scenes. Orson had edited 41 minutes of scenes. Uh, well, I mean, he did them really the way he wanted, and he put some music on it. And But it was a work print because he and Gary had basically stolen the work print from the lab in Paris when they were having a dispute with the Iranian investors, which is another 
wild story. They loaded this all in a Volkswagen and smuggled it to America. And so Gary had taken those 41 minutes and whatever else he had and cobbled together a version. I, I thought it was a mistake to show that to investors because it it looked like a sort of half-assed, complete film that wasn't really complete, you know. And I said, why don't we re-edit this thing and cut it down to about 60 minutes and keep the 41 minutes and then maybe 20 minutes of good stuff and, and not purport that this is the whole film, but it's just kind of like a bunch of scenes and he wouldn't do that. So we showed the longer version to a lot of investors who were kind of baffled by it, basically. But I had a friend who was working for Showtime, the cable network, and uh, Susan Katz, and she took it to Showtime and said, this is Orson Welles' film that you guys should look at. And they looked at it, and uh, Gary had had talked to them some time before, and they he hadn't gotten them to commit. But in the meantime, you know, the touch of evil thing had happened. And so anyway, Matthew Duda was this executive at Showtime, and uh, he understood the potential of this film. And Gary and I made a deal with uh, Matthew Duda. And I should say that for a long time, there was a kind of an impasse between Oya Kodar, who's Wells' companion and mistress and collaborator on the other side of the wind. She owned his rights to the film, which he left in his will. But the other half of the film, uh, or the other portion of the film, was owned by... Mehdi Bouchery, who was an Iranian, who was a brother-in-law of the late Shah, and Bouchery owned a film company in Paris that was connected with the Iranian government, which so they had invested a lot of money in the film, so it was very complicated. And Bouchery and Wells had fallen out because every time Wells needed more money, Bouchery would make him surrender some of his percentage of ownership, and so it got down to something like 80% Bouchery and 20% Wells, which really bothered Wells, you know. So I thought the solution to this would be somehow to broker a deal in which each side would get half and, you know, settle and cash out. And Gary acted like Henry Kissinger doing shuttle diplomacy. He was going to Paris and he talked Bouchery into doing that and he talked Oya into doing that. So I kind of arbitrarily said we'll give each of them a million dollars and we'll take a million for post-production and it would take a year and a half and it was a very rough estimate and I and I wrote a memo that I, in which I detailed how we could finish the film and, and I estimated very uh, conservatively based on the Touch of Evil success that we could gross easily seven million dollars you know theatrically a couple million and and then sell it to cable companies around the world. And, it, it, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. You can make a profit, a modest profit, but you can make a profit. And so the Showtime went along with that, and they agreed to put up $3 million. And I was going to produce the film at, at one point with Rick Schmidlin, and then he dropped out. He kind of lost interest in the film. So it was down to me producing the film, and I wanted Peter Bogdanovich to do the post-production because he's a very fine director, and Wells had apparently asked him to finish the film if anything happened to him. So Peter had agreed to do that. And Hoya had been with me in meetings and everything seemed fine. And then Peter and Hoya, the minute the deal was made, fired me from the film. They both, you know, thought they didn't need me anymore, which was very short-sighted. 
you know, I thought this is this is unfair, but I didn't want to make any trouble for the film, so I just bowed out and let them do their thing. And then the deal collapsed immediately, almost immediately, because Beatrice Wells, Wells' daughter, started raising objections. And she had, she has a history of interfering with various projects of her father's, even though she had no ownership of the other side of the wind. She inherited his artist's rights in France, author's rights, they call it, which means that the author has control of cutting and things like that. Even It's not something we have in America, but uh, they have it in Europe. So she had some leverage in that regard, so she had to be dealt with. So she raised objections, and so the whole Showtime deal collapsed. And, you know, I'm sitting on the sidelines for years, and I kept hearing... You know, it was off, it was on, it was off, it was on, and Peter and I were feuding, and, you know, apparently there was a dispute between them about who who was going to get the final cut. You know, Peter wanted the final cut, and Oya wanted the final cut, and, you know, they both have an emotional investment in the film, and they both had financial interests, and, you know, it was just sort of a a never-ending situation, and Beatrice was involved. And finally, Philip Jen Remsa and Jens Kothner call two European producers came into the picture and uh, managed to talk Oya and Boucherie's family, since he had died in the interim, into cashing out uh, and allowing them to control the editing, which was very smart because... You know, you're not going to be able to resolve the battle between Oya and Peter and and all that. So you need some kind of third party to finish the film. So they got control of of that. And Frank Marshall is involved. He's a, as you know, a very famous Hollywood producer. Worked a lot with Spielberg, and he was a producer on the other side of the wind when he was very young. He was a line producer. So that's where it's at at the moment. And they announced it in the New York Times last fall that. They had reached this deal. As far as I understand, they're currently setting up uh, post-production, and you know it's it's a complicated job to finish the film. It's going to take a while to finish the film, and I th- think people shouldn't be too impatient about it. It should be done properly. Do you think it's really going to happen this time? This is the best chance the film will ever have, I guess. I mean, some people used to say a few years ago this this film will never come out until everybody who worked on it is dead, <laughs> you know, which. Uh, uh, is sobering for me to hear because I'm one of the few surviving cast members. There are a few. Uh, a number of the crew people are alive because they were quite young at the time, but a lot of the cast were older people who've died. Um, the implication being that, you know, it would only happen if people who have a vested interest in it were no longer causing trouble. It's a little easier to finish it with Wells not being around. Ironically, when the artist is not around, it's a little easier to deal with him, you know. But I think that this is a very good chance. Philip and uh, Jens, who I've talked to uh, repeatedly, are very shrewd and good businessmen and uh, very, you know, diplomatic. And Frank Marshall is uh, very, you know, extremely uh, knowledgeable and sophisticated Hollywood producer. And he's he cares about the film because he worked on it and. And he understands the quality of the film, and he's an old associate of Peter Bogdanovich, and Frank is a very diplomatic fellow, and so they managed to get Beatrice Wells on board, which was quite a 
thing, and she's now enthusiastic, I'm told, about helping finish the film, and uh, they've got Oya and Peter, and, you know, everybody is, is, is on board, and the Bouchery family are happy, and, you know, it's just a question of so many things have happened over the years, as Josh Karp's wonderful book uh, documents that <clears throat> something always seems to happen, uh, and I hope that nothing bad happens. But uh, I've been saying, and I've heard this, Josh told me he's heard this from a number of people who worked on the film, that I won't really believe it until I'm sitting in a theater somewhere and the curtains open and the film flashes up on the screen. But somebody else said, well, I won't believe it until the end title flashes off the screen and, and the film stops. You know? <laughs> so I guess I have to take that. And I think even Oya said that at some point. So I guess, you know, we've been burned so many times that that, um, that you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But I'm, I really think that these people are serious and capable and have the best interests of the film at heart and will finish it in the best possible way. So I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty guardedly optimistic about it, you know. But I, I don't want to just say, oh, it's all a fait accompli or anything like that. We're back and we're talking about Orson Welles' Other Side of the Wind. Now, this isn't an April Fool's joke like our Day the Clown Cried episode. Sorry to tell you about that. that yeah, that's a fake if you didn't know that. Uh, but uh, we're discussing another film that has yet to be released, but uh, it's my understanding that uh, it could be on the way. Is that uh, true, Mr. Mike? That's what they say. I mean, it was funny. Um, Andrew, you said that you interviewed Peter Jason earlier this year, and you hooked me up with some of his contact information. So I sent him an email, and then next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from this guy who says, you know, oh, you requested an interview with Peter Bogdanovich. And I'm like, yeah, that was a, a while ago, you know, like pretty much when we decided that we were going to do this episode. And uh, he was like, oh, well, I'm sorry. Um, nobody's available to talk about Other Side of the Wind right now. We're about to start scanning the negatives and all this kind of stuff. And then got back to my computer and he had sent me an email. And it was actually a response to the foreword of Peter Jason's email. So I'm like, okay, no wonder I was confused because I was actually requesting Peter Jason, not Peter Bogdanovich. But Apparently, everybody is kind of under lock and key, except for our friend, Joseph McBride. So that's kind of nice that he was able to speak about the film. So they're in lockdown mode right now, they say, and they're going to be starting work on this. But it's one of those, I'll believe it when I see it. And I do have to say, you know, I mentioned Josh Karp's uh, book earlier. That is one of the most, I don't want to say mind-numbing, because that makes it sound like he didn't write it well. It is one of the most frustrating sections of his book about other side of the wind is just all of the attempts to bring the movie out that have just been thwarted over the years by various players that were involved or not involved. You know, Andrew, you mentioned Beatrice Wells earlier, and she's one who's put the brakes on several times. Bogdanovich has put the brakes on a few times. So many things have stopped this movie from coming out and I'm curious if it ever will. I also heard that there may be an international component to this, because I read somewhere that it was funded by a producer who is an Iranian, and then the Iranian Revolution happened in 1979, and that locked it away. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's bullshit. He was actually the cousin of the Ayatollah Khomeini. See, I heard he was the brother of the Shah of Iran. It was something like that. So It's been years for me, so you know, I, 
I'm sure you've got it better than I do. You. I think the Shaw makes more sense than the Ayatollah, but it, like I just find it fascinating that now international intrigue is on top of this film. Like it's hard enough to get the damn film done and out, but no, then there has to be the Iranian Revolution on top. I just find that hilarious. There's also France is involved because it was Iran through France to the United States, so apparently the negative is held over in France. So, yeah, it's uh, very much an international incident. Apparently, even though the shoot went on forever and ever and ever, apparently it was a really fun shoot, and I, and I thought that might be interesting to just kind of throw in there. Uh, everybody that I've talked to talks about, you know, the frustrations that they felt at the time. One thing I was going to point out that I just thought was hilarious, and I had to find a way to shoehorn this in there, was that Wells would stop shooting because MASH was on. Hey, so would I, man. So, well, you know, it was very important he had his priorities. Well, the other thing, also remember, in during this time, must, would have been towards the end of the shooting, because if this shot between 70 and, seven, uh, 70 and 76 would have been Jodorowsky asking Orson Wells to be in his version of Dune. And remember one of the stipulations uh, that Jodorowsky talks about in the documentary of getting Wells for Dune was that he would hire this chef from the restaurant that he liked, and the chef would cater his meals on the set. And that was the stipulation to get him to play in Dune. Wells was also offered uh, Popeye before Robert Altman took the job, which imagine you know what a different Popeye that would be, especially with this uh, crazy fast cross-cutting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just imagining Wells having sunk so low to do Popeye is, is a laugh. Obviously, Wells turned it down even though he was in need of money, you know, to finance his own projects. He took on all those wine commercials and, you know, we will sell the wine before it's time and all that good stuff. But he had his standards. He was not going to do Popeye. I don't know how many standards he had. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Mel Peritus, but, uh, I mean, he was in some bad movies at the time, and he he was used to that, though. I mean, he, since the beginning, I mean, since he was in Jane Eyre, he was all about, like, I'll do the acting stuff in order to make the money to fund the directing stuff. And, you know, he did that for so many years. And when you look at his filmography from 70 to 76, I mean, he was working, you know, he was steadily working. I mean, there are little things like, you know, get to know your rabbit. He was, uh, the narrator of Ricky Ticky Tabby. So, you know, he was doing all this work in between and yeah, he had the wine commercials. He was doing, you know, the frozen peas, of course, all these different commercial gigs in order to get the money to keep that project going. And that's kind of his whole raison d'etre was, I've got this great voice. I've got this great acting ability. I will do what it takes and use those gifts to try to fund what I really want to do. And what I really want to do is direct films. Which, in a way, is the same model that in a guy who completed a lot of film, a lot of great films, uh, during the same era, uh, John Cassavetes, where he would go do the acting gig and then use the money to make his own movies. So the, you, you have the same thing there. And I have to say, those those wine ads, the wine ads by themselves are fine. I have a touch of like sadness and humor. I laugh, but I feel bad for laughing at the outtakes of the wine ads. And you know which one I'm talking about. 102, take two. Ah, the French champagne. It's always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. 
It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. Cut. So, Paul Masson. 102, take three. Action, please. Ah, the French. So, Cut. Paul Masson. And you just feel so bad. You're just like, oh, man, how the mighty have fallen. You know what's funny? Some of the ads were actually filmed by Graver and with Wells. I can't remember what the products were for, but he did so many products, and some of this was just weird stuff. And, uh, you know, Sears had a really early version of the VCR, and they put out six movies. You could only get them from Sears, and they were all introduced by Orson Welles, shot by Graver. But I remember Graver saying that one time they drove out in the country because they were looking for silence, but they kept getting moves in the... They kept getting cow moves in the background, and, you know... All of this stuff is sort of comical to think of. You know, you talk about how the mighty have fallen. It's just interesting to picture someone as grandiose and someone as accomplished as Wells out in the middle of a field trying to shoot a commercial with his buddy and getting cow noises in the background. I mean, and you're right. There was just about anything he would do. I, I think he, his standards only uh, went so far, but I think that, you know, they definitely applied to the directorial work. And uh, it, the Popeye thing was a directorial gig, which, you know... Altman took it, and God bless him for it, but I don't think it would have fit Wells. I want to know, Andrew, how did you go from seeing Graver's contact information in a magazine to helping to write a book with him? I wanted to do a book on Wells for years, but I wanted to do something from a different angle. And, you know, so much of it has already been done. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't read Josh Karp's book yet, but I've got to say the greatest book that I've ever read on Wells is Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, which is by our buddy Joe McBride, who wrote the intro for our book. I just cold-called him, and being Gary Graver, he was always working on something. He loved film. He, he shot outtakes for Steven Seagal movies and Fred Olin Ray stuff and just all kinds of... And, you know, he even did Al Adamson movies, Frankenstein vs. Dracula or whatever that movie is. And, you know, he was always busy. So whenever I would call him, he'd be in the middle of a shoot. And he'd say, I have to call you back. And... Uh, eventually, you know, I got a hold of him and we got to talk and I told him that I really wanted to do a book on Wells and I would be interested in telling his story. And apparently that's something that he had wanted to do for years. So uh, I ended up going out to LA for a few weeks and got to spend a lot of time with him and his wife, Jillian. And, uh, and we put together this book and, you know, it's something I'm really proud of. And, uh, Gary died in the middle of it before, you know, the book was completed which was sad, and then Jillian died a year later, which was also very sad. But, um, yeah, more than a good book, I got a friend out of the deal, and, and Gary Graver, he was a great, great guy. But, you know what, he admired and respected and loved Orson Welles like no one. Graver, just one of so many people that Carp couldn't contact because there are just so many people that have passed away. I mean, even watching that little bit of footage, rewatching that this afternoon, it's like, oh, wow, you know, this, this person's gone. That person, of course, John Houston's gone, but even seeing like Mazursky, you know, passed away kind of unexpectedly last year, and just so many other people are just like, oh, man, you know, when this movie comes out, there's just going to be a fraction of people left that were involved at all. And it's just, uh, it, it's, pretty sad and it's got to be challenging as an author trying to write a book about a movie that has yet to come out that was being filmed between 70 and 76 where now so many people 
have moved on. And at least there are works like what you did, Andrew, to help Gary, you know, write his book and you know have his memoir and everything, so that there are sources out there for people to you know now go back and be able to piece larger stories together. You know, this is one of those things we're never going to get the whole story, but it's great to have the bits and pieces. And I'm very excited about Josh Karp's book. I can't wait to read it. And I'm very excited, uh, you know, about the things that we're learning in this podcast. I think it's it's integral to learning the history of film. And, you know, the future and the past to learn about someone uh, such a luminary as well, such a visionary. And I think that this was a very important film, you know, that we're, we're probably never going to honestly see. But it's a, it's a book, and it was supposed to be his book and the Citizen Kane. He wanted it to be his Citizen Kane at the end. And it may very well have been. And I think that learning about that is, is, is an important step towards learning about film. So let's go ahead and take another break and play an interview with Josh Karp, the author of Orson Welles' last movie, The Making of Other Side of the Wind. My name is Josh Karp. I'm a writer. My background is in journalism. For years, I did a lot of magazine journalism profiles. I wrote for Chicago Magazine, um, the Chicago Sun-Times, mostly freelance stuff. Crane's Chicago Business, I wrote for them. And then did a lot of author profiles for magazines that no longer exist that had names like book and <laughs> things like that you know like there aren't magazines about books so much anymore but there are all these uh other one with a great like you know kind of book name but um anyway yeah so i mean i've been a freelance journalist for about 15 years and i uh, teach journalism occasionally at northwestern university and otherwise i write nonfiction books and uh, this is my third nonfiction book and the two prior ones were I wrote a book about uh, Doug, Conney, Doug Kenny, who started National Lampoon and wrote Animal House and Caddyshack, and then very mysteriously fell off, literally fell off a cliff in Hawaii to his death. And then I wrote a golf book, which is probably not as interesting given our circumstances. But uh, basically what I do is write nonfiction books for a living. What got you interested in The Other Side of the Wind? Whenever I'm in the middle of working on a book, I, I think, and I think I might not be the only person who writes who feels this way. You get you get to this midway point and you're like, I don't want to finish this. This is horrible. I'm I'm you know I'm gonna to have to give all my money back to the to the publisher and this is too much and I'm never gonna finish this and this is horrible and you want a huge distraction. For me, what happened was you know I for some reason I was reading a book about Wells or a book I had I had about Wells that was laying around and I I read just some great story from the other side of the wind. Um, some crazy story about John Houston on the set or some crazy story about Wells, you know, you know, having an outburst or something like that. And I started to get really interested in that story and I kind of got sidetracked because I, I had known about it. And, um, you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a Wells scholar. I'm not, you know, I mean, I love Orson Wells. I have seen his movies. He's somebody, you know, who I grew up with you know, in kind of the Palmasan era. But I mean, I, you know, I knew all the other stuff too. Uh, But he was not, you know, an obsession of mine. He was just, you know, somebody I admired and somebody I understood who he was and what his place, you know, in, in film history was. But the story, you know, it started out with these great, crazy stories. And you could always find like one or two or three of them somewhere, but you never got the whole story of the making of this picture. So at first I was kind of, you know, like just following these amusing stories, and the more and more I read about the film, and I read about the making of the film, 
I I started to have this uh, you know feeling that you know there was this, the fact that this film was unfinished, the fact that it um, even though he denied its autobiographical nature, that there was something you know really more meaningful about this just being a crazy making of a movie story. It seemed to me like this movie had you know was was symbolic in some way and and meant something and I wasn't sure what it was though uh I had the suspicion that it was kind of like Stephen Colbert's portrait you know of himself standing in front of the portrait of himself standing in front of the portrait of himself I I thought that there was this very strange art imitating life life imitating art and just weird hall of mirrors aspect of it so there were the great stories there was this kind of greater depth and you know there was something that I wanted to learn about that you know that I was just really intrigued by, and then the third thing was there are only so many great people, especially in the movie business, that haven't been written about to death. And Wells has been written about kind of to death, but I thought, wow, this is a chance to write a, about Orson Welles and John Huston, two guys who could not exist anymore. You know, two guys who are brilliant, live these lives that people don't live anymore. And I thought, you know, that this is really. This could be, you know, a great opportunity. So I got back in and finished the other book, but I kept acquiring all this material on the other side of the wind over the course of finishing the other book. And by the time I was done with that, I, you know, I, I sat down and in the period in between finishing the book and the other book being published, I started to think, you know, this is really, this is what I want to do next. And so, so that's what happened. And, and I, I feel like I got really lucky because it's, it's a great story and you could not get better characters. You know, you could not make them up. What's the timeline for this? Like, when are you first reading the story that sparks your interest? And when are you saying, okay, this is going to be my next project? You know, I, I think it was probably about 2010-ish that I started reading. It's, 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 it's actually kind of, like, shocking when I look back now because, you know, you always think when you go into something like this that you're just going to, like, knock it out in 18 months. Like I've learned so much from what I've done before. This will be no problem. And uh, of course, so now I look back and it's five years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think about it, it was about 2010 that I kind of started getting the first inklings of wanting to, you know, of being interested in wanting to do something about this. And then when uh, my other book, uh, my last book came out, I think it was like spring 2010 or summer 2010 I started going, okay, you know, what am I going to do for my next book? And there were a couple different things, and this one was always the one that just came back. So I think I made the deal, um, I, you know, I sold it to St. Martin's in sometime in mid-2011. Um, so it was, you know, about a, a year, year and a half of from being interested in it, in it to finishing the other book and then writing a proposal for this book. What was your approach when it came to researching the book? The first thing I did was uh, the internet obviously is, is fantastic and you can find people so much more easily than even 10 years ago when I, when I wrote my first book. But what, what I did was I, you know, I initially just went and said, okay, how can I find these people? And what's so great is this movie was such, you know, being around Orson Welles is something that every, nobody forgot. And anybody who was there for a day or a week or a year, this was one of the major moments in their life, even if they went on to achieve remarkable things. So as a result, everybody, you know, who works in the entertainment industry, who's involved with this, who kept, you know, who has a bio online, 
kept the other side of the wind in there. So I immediately was able to just access this huge number of people. So I'm writing down these huge lists of people. And the thing I did first, once I kind of amassed, you know, a list of, of people was I started with people who were not like, and it's not to demean them to say this, who are not the essential people. I started kind of from the outside. I wanted to interview people who were more tangentially involved, people who might have been an extra there for a week, people who might have been a crew member for two weeks. And, and I tried to work my way inwards to the most important people for a couple reasons. One, I knew that this was, you know, this is a guy who people feel really, um, you know, proprietary about and whose work is very, you know, very complicated and, and it's not, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's a different kettle of fish to write about Orson Welles than it is to write about other people. So I wanted to learn in kind of smaller bits so that by the time I got, you know, I, I kind of got bigger and bigger and more involved um, interview subject wise as time went on. So what I did was, you know, I, I interviewed, you know, kind of from the outside in and got to where I'd interviewed 30 or 40 people. And I started to feel like, okay, I know what I'm talking about when I get to somebody who was there for a year, you know, or who was on the set a lot. And the other thing it did too, was that by the time you get to the people, you really, really are like the big names that you're like, well, that's, you know, those are the big fish I really want to interview. You have a little bit of leverage because you've got the information and you know the material as well as, you know, any, you know, hopefully anybody. And you can, when you can kind of live without them a little bit, you know, when you don't, if you, when you aren't going to die without interviewing that person, then it's a lot easier to get them to talk to you. So that, that was kind of my strategy was I, I, you know, gathered written material, obviously, and read all that kind of stuff. Um, but as far as interviewing people, I just, you know, moved inwards until, you know, at the end, it was more Peter Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall and people like that who were, you know, more deeply involved. When it comes to doing research, I always kind of liken it to, you know, mining for gold. Where was some of those rich veins? Where, where did you strike the, the mother load, especially when it comes to the written material? Because it seems like there's kind of a dearth of written material when it comes to this film. I will admit to how many times I just stumbled upon things you know you know you look back and you think wow you know i really did a great job researching this and it's very easy at first to get you know like you know i could get everything every time it ever was mentioned in variety every time it was ever mentioned in the la times or hollywood reporter or any newspaper so that was good you know as far as you know starting to kind of get a grip on just some of the real basics but the real the real mother load was when i found out and i stumbled upon the fact that Wells's papers from this time were at University of Michigan. I can't remember how I stumbled on it, but I had been thinking almost everything was collected at Indiana. And because there is a bunch of stuff at the Lilly Library at University of Indiana. And um, when I found out about the Wells collection in Ann Arbor, I went up there and started reading it. All these blanks started getting filled in. And, you know, one thing people may or may not know about Wells is the guy never slept. I mean, ever. If he wasn't shooting a film, if he wasn't shooting, it wasn't you know doing voiceover for something. If he wasn't writing a script, if he wasn't rewriting the script for Other Side of the Wind, which he did compulsively, and on you know a very you know an incredibly regular basis throughout the entire production, he was firing off memos to people. And this 
film, like most of his films, had a very complicated, all kinds of complicated financial stuff and um, you know business dealings. There was just an overwhelming number of memos that he had written about uh, this that were you know ranged from providing great information. Some of them were hilarious, intentionally hilarious on his part. I mean, he writes a writes a memo after he's written months of memos to his producer complaining about the editors and complaining about the toilets and the home that he, they're renting for him and complaining about this and that. And, you know, things are very contentious. And then all of a sudden one day he says, you know, one thing you can't complain about is the lack of diversity in, you know, the subjects of the memos I write. I've written to you about toilets. I've written to you about editors. Today I'm writing to you about midgets. He then <laughs> writes this great detailed description about how he basically wants to, you know, what's the going rate to get midget actors in France? Because he was in France at the time. And then he expresses, you know, the difference between a midget and a dwarf and that he prefers, and he says something, I can't, I wish I remembered exactly, but he says, I prefer, you know, he says, I prefer midgets. He said, of course, for filming. So one of the people whose name uh, I found was a guy named Jack Epps, who uh, I later learned was the screenwriter of Top Gun. And, uh, Along with his name, after I, and, and he's also a film pr- professor at USC. When I contacted him, um, you know, he said, "I said I'll be in Los Angeles. I'd love to sit down and talk with you." And he said, "Sure, you know, come to my house." And then I tried to get in contact with another person uh, named Cynthia Steinway, and I actually asked Jack. I said, "You know, do you um, do you happen to know you know these other people?" And I gave him you know four or five names who had worked on the set, and he said, "Well, I do know Cynthia Steinway. She's my wife." And uh, Cynthia is not in the movie business like Jack is. And um, I sat down with them, and Jack was great, and he had great recollections and said, you know, gave me great quotes like, you know, Wells was always incredibly respectful of the crew right up until the moment he fired all of us, you know, and things like that. He was great with, you know, good lines and good stories, and he understands movies. But uh, Cynthia really didn't know who Wells was when she went to work on the film as his assistant. And um, she, you know, has not pursued a career in the film industry. She does other things. So her perspective, and, and it often turns out to be this way, it was really fascinating. And, like, the most poignant um, story I think anybody told me was she discussed um, bringing him a very large order. And I don't love to talk about all the Wells food stuff, but this is just happens to be the case. A um, very large order of uh, fast food. To his hotel room and she came into the room and I think he might have been already eating something else and he was wearing a bathrobe and there was a food stain on it and there were bottles of medicine all over every possible surface because he was not in great health and she walked in with all this food and saw him eating and saw all this medication and kind of just I think you know stood there like and took it in for a moment and he saw her doing this and was embarrassed and he just looked at her and he goes, do you think I want to live this way? And, you know, to me that, you know, that was, it was really important to me to get stories like that because you're talking about, you know, you can't get more larger than life as a, as a pop culture figure, as a person in the movie industry than Orson Welles. And he is known, you know, in, in, in culture for one of two things. He's the Citizen Kane guy. Right, he's the genius, or he's the guy who did all the Palmasan commercials and was overweight. And he played the part of Orson Welles all the time, and he loved it. 
And I know he enjoyed being that big figure. But, you know, underneath all that, there's a lot in between Paul Masson Orson and Citizen Kane Orson. And underneath all that, there's a real guy because there's always a real person there. And so that to me was was one of the most that was, what you know, to talk about, you know, the moments of, you know, getting the gold. That was really like a moment of getting some real gold. Who were some of the most surprising people that you found that had worked on this film? There are all these people who were alleged to have been in the movie who were not and who I got to kind of follow up with. So, like, I contacted Lily Tomlin's representative because at some point Lily Tomlin was allegedly asked to be in the movie. She had no recollection of it. You know, there are all kinds of other people. You know, Jack Nicholson was supposed to have been in the movie. Um, And there were people – it was great because you do interviews. This is 40 years ago. And people remember this as this bigger-than-life experience. They're like, oh, my God, and that was the night we shot with Nicholson. You know, and Nicholson was never there. Um, so there's all kinds of, you know, kind of great apocryphal um, apocryphal stuff that happened. But one of, um, or a lot of legend, I guess. Um, but one of the really fun things was, you know, one time after Wells died, Showtime, for many years, was deeply involved in trying to get the film completed. And uh, I believe the story was that some Showtime executive was having a meeting with Les Moonves, who runs CBS, which own, owns or owns Showtime. And um, and they said, you know, oh, one of the things we got to talk about is this crazy Orson Welles movie that he never finished. You know, I'm sure you've never heard of it. It's called The Other Side of the Wind. And Les Moonves said, heard of it? I'm in it. This was a story told to me by Joe McBride um, and a couple other people. And I thought, well, there's no way Les Moonves is going to talk to me. But what the hell I'll give it a shot because it, you know, here's, you know, here's this guy who's like a, you know, one of the most powerful people in the entertainment industry. And he, he's, he was there. So I, I contacted CBS publicity and that's, you know, yeah, publicity people, unless there's a real good reason for them to want to help you don't always help you. And they, you know, their reaction, I explained the situation and they were kind of like, yeah, um, you know, you'll hear back from us, you know, never. And, a couple days later, I get an email back, and they're like, Les Moonves would love to talk to you. And, you know, he really didn't you – know, it was great because he he wanted to know about what happened, um, you know, which was just so fun. You know, I mean, and, and there were people, you know, the, the whole thing was so disjointed that nobody, you know, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, you know, people were there for periods of time. And there were people who were there for a long period of time but didn't know about all kinds of things that happened. And somebody who knew about the financing didn't know anything about the shooting of the film. And people who knew about the shooting of the film never got to, you know, talk to several of the actors. So it was kind of cool because once you start learning all the details and you become the person who's got some authoritative knowledge of it, it makes great conversation because people love the experience. They never forgot it. And you could share information with them that helped, that helped you because it would feed their ability to talk back to you. But um, just, you know, really, the interviews were great because, um, you know, my, my most memorable interview, I guess, just in terms of sheer entertainment was Rich Little, who was in the movie playing uh, the part of a guy who was um, a young, successful young director, very much like Peter Bogdanovich, who was playing a protege, and he was the character, his name was Brooks Otterlake, was a protege of the main character played by John Huston, who's a famous director. And uh, so I get Rich Little on the phone and, you know, you kind of forget what a really great impressionist can do. 
And so, you know, you, I don't think a lot about people who do celebrity impressions, but here I am on the phone with Rich Little, and he is doing conversations between John Huston and Orson Welles as John Huston and Orson Welles. One of the great regrets of my life is that I'm really good at typing and uh, was not able, I, I don't tape all my interviews, I type during them, and so I don't have any tape of that. But that was just, it was unreal. I mean, and he was, you know, he's so good at doing those guys. And just, you know, boom, 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 full conversations back and forth between the two guys. So that that was great. Um, that was probably among the most memorable interviews. It seems so strange that he was the original Otter-like, whereas the character just seems so Bogdanovich. And Bogdanovich is famous also for doing impressions, much, you know, not as much as Rich Little. Right. But it's like, why weren't you there originally? The story with Bogdanovich that's fascinating and this was what you know going back to kind of what attracted me to the story bogdanovich's role is is the perfect example of that so you know bogdanovich and wells had this kind of you know mentor protege relationship um and bogdanovich when bogdanovich was a film writer or wrote about film and he was a critic wrote for esquire you know and was doing writing about film and he was writing, you know, doing work for Roger Corman and learning how to make movies. And he made Targets, but he was not the Peter Bogdanovich yet. So in 1970, when they first started shooting the film, Bogdanovich and Joe McBride on day one, August 23rd, 1970, at this rented house in Beverly Hills, they are playing two characters who are both guys who are writing um, books about the main character about this great director. At the time, McBride and Bogdanovich are both film writers writing books about Orson Welles. Fast forward four years later, Bogdanovich has made Last Picture Show, he's made What's Up Doc, and he's made Paper Moon. And Rich Little is hired to play this character who's very much like Bogdanovich. He's got three hit movies. He even has his own uh, production company, and the valuation of it, I think they refer to it at some point as $40 million, which is roughly what the director's company that Bogdanovich was involved with was worth at the time. So he is like totally Bogdanovich. And Rich Little either it fired, gets fired or leaves the set or there's a misunderstanding and has to leave. So Rich Little disappears and Wells is in deep trouble because he shot all this film with Rich Little and now he's gone. And he's got John Houston there, and he's got all these people in Arizona where they're shooting, and he needs somebody to play this part. And he calls up Bogdanovich, who he speaks to every day. And he says, you know, Peter, you know, I'm, I'm in huge trouble. Rich Little is left. He says, you know, what am I going to do? And Bogdanovich says, well, you know, why don't I play the part? And Wells says, well, of course you can't play the part. You know, he says, you, you know, you're playing the other role. And he says, well, that's a tiny role. You know, if we can reshoot that with somebody else, it won't be a problem. He says, I'll do this. And Wells goes, oh, my God, I never thought of that. You know, you're perfect for this. And, and Bogdanovich says, so he's a, he's a protege of the lead character. He's got three hit movies in a row, and he loves to do celebrity impressions all the time. And you never thought of me for the part? You know, and, it's, and with Wells, it's kind of great, because you never know. Wells is directing every moment of his life. So, you know, you don't know, you know, what Wells, you know, if Wells had always, you know, thought, well, you know, I'll just get Bogdanovich or if he genuinely was kind of flabbergasted by the sudden thought, 
But all of a sudden, Bogdanovich goes from playing in 1970, he's playing who he is in 1970, and now in 1974, he's playing who he is in 
major person who was alive that I tried to get that would not talk to me. One of the things that I've found with Wells in you know, looking at uh, written material about him and just stories about him and everything is it, it feels very, well, and I'm sure you've experienced it, it feels very Rashman. It's uh, what do you believe, whose perspective are you getting? What were some of the biggest conflicts that you got? I mean, you mentioned the people that were allegedly there, but what were some of the bigger ones where it was like so many people said one thing and so many people said another? There, there are a couple things. One of them was, was the departure of Rich Little. Because everybody remembered it vividly and everybody remembered it differently. And there were, you know, people who said, oh, Wells realized that Little wasn't a good actor, but he didn't want to fire him because he liked him personally. So he kind of created a situation where he was able to let him go without it seeming like a bad thing. Little claimed that he had told Wells ahead of time. And this is not, I'm not saying it's right, but it's not hard to believe that he had told him ahead of time you know, hey, I've got, you know, a bunch of stand-up gigs booked that I have to do. So I can only work during, you know, this three and a half to four week period of time. And Wells said, no problem. And then it just came to the point where Little had to leave. You know, he left and it was devastating to Wells. There are other people who think, you know, who said Wells was furious and, you know, couldn't take it and fired Rich Little. And then there are other people who said that Rich Little was there one day and then would just disappear in the middle of the night. So, you know, in, the, in those circumstances, you know, one of the things you also always have to remember is, you know, these are, these are real people and they're alive, you know, Rich Little. And, you know, you can't say, oh, he did this, he did that. You have to kind of give with Wells every side of the story sometimes. So I kind of told that, I think, three different ways. Um, there's also the story of money being stolen, allegedly being stolen from the production, uh, while they were in Arizona. And there were so many sides of that story that it was just, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, my initial draft of writing about it was about 20 pages long. Um, <laughs> just trying to, you know, give everybody's side of the story because, you know, you don't know what really happened in some cases. It's, again, life imitating art. I mean, this is so Charles Foster Kane with all the different people telling their Charles Foster Kane stories. Yes. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, I think one thing, obviously, that Wells, you know, loved to say was, you know, that he, you know, he, he kind of dismissed the people who were doing all the critical analyses of what everything meant. And, you know, and the, the, you know, he made the great comment to Mike Nichols about, you know, talking about the themes of your work that, you know, screw it, just wait until you're dead and let the guys who do that for a living figure out what it all meant. Um, which, I, which I think is great, but he was such a complicated guy. And I think, you know, there was also a side of him that loved the analysis of what he did and, you know, and, and enjoyed the fact that people were really interested in this. And as somebody who is not, again, a well scholar, to me, there's such incredible symmetry to the way his career starts with Kane, And, you know, the, fact that there's incredible irony in the fact that the opening of Kane is, you know, you see Xanadu, which is Kane's unfinished mansion, which is named for, and they recite a poem by Coleridge that is unfinished, right? And there's all this like incompletion at the start of his first movie. The subtle theme of things not being finished is all over the first few sequences of Kane. And here you come 
the, at, which then of course becomes to me the most complete movie ever made. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, again, I'm not a film scholar, but it's perfect to me. It's, it's just so satisfying. You don't finish that movie and go like, Oh, I just wish they'd, you know, oh, there was that moment where, you know, you just watch it and you're like, wow, that just, whatever it was, it worked on every level. And then, and it's so tight and, you know, and just complete and kind of this perfect thing. And then you have this thing at the end of his life that is, you know, famously incomplete. And I think there's this real symmetry to, you know, I, I think there's a lot of Wells in Kane, and I think there's a lot of Wells in Jake Hannaford, um, the, the protagonist of Other Side of the Wind. And I think that's a, you know, kind of a, I, I spent a lot of time writing about it, and I, I don't know that I can express it verbally, but, you know, I think Kane is, they are both Wells to some extent. And I think Wells was really, um, you know, and Kane is kind of who young Kane is who Wells starts out as. Um, there's so many, sim- there are similarities in their upbringing. Um, there are similarities between them, you know, as, you know, men of great appetite with great desire to do great things. And they're great men. And in the end, you know, you have Jake Hannaford, who is also kind of a great man in the sense of, you know, in a Hollywood sense. And he is, diminished and at loose ends and i don't know that that's necessarily an expression of exactly where wells was but wells was in a very different place and he was in a very difficult place at this time of his life so it's almost just eerie how much it's like the progression of kane's life in some strange way it's not you know moment for moment and you know he doesn't you know drop the thing and say rosebud and all that but there's a real he's remarkable because He's so big that he can't help but be part of every movie he makes, if that, if that makes sense. You know, it, it's, it's in a way his story, even when it's Shakespeare. It touches on all the Wellesian themes, and it's kind of about him. And that's not a negative thing. I mean, he's, he's a remarkable guy, and his life is – he lived a Cain-like existence. I think one of the biggest misunderstandings about the film is that – this wasn't Orson Welles's final film. This didn't end with him dying. So what was the story as far as how the film wraps up versus how Orson wraps up? Because there is that period in between there, and why wasn't there more motion in that last bit? One of the other great weird coincidences is the protagonist of the film, Hannaford. The film opens with his death in a car accident. And the question is, is it, suicide or is it or is it an accident and you know that's also how kane opens right is with the death of the main character and hannaford dies at the age of 70 and wells 15 years after he starts shooting the film dies at the age of 70 there were a lot of reasons the film didn't get finished but you know one of probably the the biggest reasons is that it is wells relationship to money and his relationship to the financing of a film um, he had an absolutely, you know, for a guy who was such a smart guy, easily the smartest person I'll ever write about in my life. You know, and he knew, it's, it's fascinating, he knew that he had this horrible blind spot when it came to, to picking the right people to work with as producers, when it came to, you know, getting a film financed. He, he said, you know, he'd had people steal money from him in the past, 
And he said to somebody at some point, he said, you know, I get it. I'm like the guy who every time he walks out of the front door, he gets struck by lightning. And at a certain point, you know, it's not the lightning, it's the guy. You know, that's it's a paraphrase. But I mean, I think, you know, he, he knew he was, you know, he had this knack for being really snake bit. And the, so the film was financed in large part by the Shah of Iran's brother-in-law, who was actually a really good guy, um, as far as I could tell. And really willing to give Wells a lot of rope and to allow him, uh, you know, to, to give him his time to make this film. And I think, you know, Wells got very caught up, you know, between, he filmed it on and off between 70 and 76 and, you know, things happen like rich little left. And all of a sudden he has to junk a huge amount of stuff that he's shot. So he has to kind of start over. He gets in his own way several times. He develops a somewhat adversarial relationship with his financiers, which isn't necessarily reflective of, their character it's just kind of a friction almost that he needed to work you know he kind of had to have trouble with the money guys sometimes to work it was just a part of how things went with him so what happened was everything was supposed to kind of come together when he received the afi life achievement award in 1975 and the film was largely complete he needed some end money he went and made this speech at the AFI award dinner. And it was a great speech. It's like a brilliant speech. And it's kind of geared to redeem himself and explain himself to Hollywood, but also to get money to finish the film. And I always think, you know, this is not the whole story, but the irony is that he shows a couple clips from the other side of the wind um, at this event. And then the last clip he shows after he kind of takes a little bit of a dig at the money people in his speech, but he's getting away with it because it's such a good speech and he's so charming and he's Orson Welles and he can just grab this whole room, you know, of famous people and rich people and just, you know, own the whole thing. And he shows a clip that is a scene of his producer or of Hannaford's producer in the movie showing Hannaford's unfinished picture to a studio head who they're trying to get on money from. Again, you have the surreal life imitating art, art imitating life. So he's showing the scene of the guy kind of begging for end money while he is subtly begging for end money. And the scene, which is about a, you know, a, a, you know, a fictional character, kind of confirms all the things, all the legends about Wells that he couldn't finish things. Like the, it shows how incomplete Hannaford's movie is. And there's just this weird irony to that moment. To me, that's kind of the moment when symbolically everything fell apart. They were, they had meetings with people. They thought all kinds of people were going to make offers. And again, you get the, you know, Rashomon experience. Some people say, you know, there was a great offer and the producers rejected it. And then another one never came. But Bogdanovich said, you know, he, he gave one of the best quotes. He said, you know, the real irony was everybody stood and applauded as loudly as they'd ever applauded in their lives, but nobody gave him a cent. So after that, in 1975, things just kind of devolved. He had some opportunities to get the film financed. His producer, you know, the Shah's brother-in-law, saw things were going bad in Iran and was saying, hey, you know, I'm going to try to sell my ownership to somebody who'll help you get this movie finished. 
And Wells, as best I can tell, really, you know, the closer he could get to getting a really good deal, there was this way in which he kind of started to recede from things because I think he wanted total control. And if there was an ounce of control, he couldn't get, um, you know, he got a little, it would make him a little bit stuck. Um, and I think he'd been burned so many times by lack of control um, that, you know, he, he just couldn't, as best I can tell, pull the trigger on making at least a couple, you know, at least one deal that could have saved this picture for him. And then, you know, when push came to shove, he wound up in a dispute with the um, Iranians, the Iranian revolution happened. Um, the film got locked up in a lab where it was being edited Wells had taken the work print, so he had a print of the film, but he didn't have the negative. There was a legal battle. The legal battle is so complicated, it almost defies explanation. But, you know, his daughter, Beatrice, under a French law, which I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of, which is droit d'auteur, which is basically the right of the author, all creative ownership of a project reverts to the author. Okay? So... After Wells died, she really had kind of creative ownership over it. Yet Oya Kodar owned, you know, Wells' financial stake in it and also, you know, um, had a claim to it as a co-writer and as a star of the film. And then the Bouchery family, which was um, uh, the Shah's brother-in-law, they had a claim. And then the production company that he set up also had a claim. So there are all these parties. And after Wells died, every time you could get three people to agree on something, the fourth would tank it. And it didn't matter who it was. It was like everybody took turns making this not happen. And, and in a way, Gary Graver, who as well as a cinematographer shortly before he died um, in 2006, had said to Joe McBride, Gary spent his whole adult life almost working on this picture past the age of 30 and was going around the world trying to get people to finance the completion of the film. And he said to McBride, when they saw each other, he said, you know, I'm still working for Orson. I never stopped. And, you know, this is, you know, 21 years after Wells died. And I think there's some kind of great, you know, again, symmetry and irony in the fact that here we are now, you know, 45 years after Wells started this movie, 30 years, you know, since his death, people are still trying to get the film finished. You know, people are still working for Orson Wells 30 years after he died. And I think, you know, that one of the great quotes I got was, uh, from somebody was they said, you know, Wells, more than anything, he just loved getting up to make movies in the morning. That was to him. That was great. was just getting, if he got up in the morning and he knew he was going to make a movie, he was happy. And he also, the guy also said, you know, you have all these people trying to enact your vision. And that is one of the most intoxicating experiences you can ever imagine. And I kind of love the idea of Wells kind of from beyond the grave you know, still has all these people working for him and trying to untangle this incredibly Byzantine, Wellsian, legal, financial, interpersonal knot that was created both in the dispute over the film while he was alive and then after he died, because, of course, his estate was not a simple deal either. One thing I learned is nothing was ever real simple for Wells. So he created a very complicated uh, afterlife for the film. Yeah, I gotta say that chapter that you put in there where you're talking about the legal battles and all the things that happened after his death, I 
can't imagine the patience that you had to write that because my eyes, and this is not an insult to you, but my eyes were glazing over just with, oh my God, what can happen next? How can this go wrong again? And <laughs> my jaw was on the floor. I did some interview where somebody said, you know, they said, well, you know, how many people have tried to complete the film over the years? And I said, I can't answer that question because the one thing I know is, and this is when uh, the article came out in the New York Times in October last year that said, you know, hey, they're really close to getting a deal done to finish this film. I said, the second that article runs, I said, I'm going to get emails from 20 people who said, you know, between 2005 and 2006, I was involved in trying to get that film completed. You know, we bought the rights to this from so-and-so. And you know, between 1992 and 94, I worked really hard on this, and it was that was really, you know, I, I I knew that no matter what I put in there, that the world was crawling with people who, at some point, for you know, for a period of time, who I don't know about, and in, and in fact, I got an email from uh, uh, from the guys who wrote Ed Wood, and they at one point had been involved um, in trying to help Gary Graver get the whole thing done, you know, and it was just totally wild. I got an email from the guy like the next day, you know, and, and, and they were not the only people. So it was, you know, as you say, your eyes glazed over. It was, it was mind numbing. I mean, it was, it was exhausting to write that part of the book. That seems like that would have been the hardest part to write. I mean, more than a movie that nobody's seen with a cast that is what, half dead who knows how many folks from them i mean most of your key players or a lot of your key players are gone right. it seems like that legal stuff would have been tougher than to write about this movie that nobody has seen it, it was it was funny because i really when i was writing about that i was i thought to myself i just want to capture the essence of how crazy this is and, and i and i'm not going to do anything more than i have to because that it's so, you know, it, 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 it's just, it's too much. And in fact, I am, um, uh, Philip, uh, Rimsa, who's, you know, one of the producers finishing the film, you know, who's, who's every time I think about what he's gone through and how long he's hung with this to try to get it done. And I know, you know, they get close and then something happens and, and I know they're really close, but like, I think about what he's been through and I just, you know, just having written about it was hard to be the person who, who says, you know, I'm doing that. I don't know. How, I, 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 my head is completely off to him and the other people involved because it is, it's a staggering undertaking. One of the guys I interviewed was this guy, Fred Zalo, who um, had produced Mississippi burning. And he, at the time had the money and the, you know, the, the power and the, all that in Hollywood and he heard about it, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to get this done. And he thought, this is Hollywood. All I got to do is just offer enough money to everybody. And he was told what everybody's price was. You know, everybody wanted X million dollars. So he offered them a little bit more than that because that was what, every, what everybody would accept. And he offered them more knowing that there might be you know, trouble. And everybody came back and wanted twice what he offered. And then he, you know, said, okay, and he offered them more than that. And then they wanted twice that. And he said, you know, even for Hollywood, this is completely insane. I, I back away. <laughs> I'm, even by the standards of this industry, 
there, this is just completely crazy. And there were so many near misses and just so, you know, and you know, they're all just people, you know I mean? They're all people. It's a very emotional thing, but it's, it's like it's set up to always wind up this way. It's almost frustrating to write about it because you just go like, Oh, like you said, you know, it's like, when is this car accident going to happen again? Over the years, footage has kind of snuck out. The shooting style, the editing style is just so crazy for this film. But it's, I mean, it's acceptable now, but I can't imagine watching this footage 40 years ago. I mean, this probably would have blown some people's minds. I mean, this is just intense. And I, I have you seen more footage than what's kind of floating out there? Because there's about maybe, what, an hour that is uh, in the the ether? I've seen the assembled hour. Um, you know, I haven't seen, you know, there's this kind of mythical two-and-a-half-hour rough cut that, you know, nobody can find and nobody knows really exists. But I've seen you know, the kind of 50 minutes to an hour that's edited by Wells and by Gary Graver in, in different parts and also has, you know, just some raw footage of various scenes. Somewhere along the way, somebody said, was talking about the editing. And I, I mean, I was not a real, and I'm still not, but I was not an expert on editing when I entered this project. And I learned a lot about editing. Um, from the the and he worked with twenty million editors on this film. I mean, the, there are so many guys who worked on this film editing it, and Wells edited it compulsively. You know, he would go back to a scene a year later that he had spent months editing for minutes, and go back and say, you know, I think I can make that better. But what is somebody said to me somewhere around the middle of the process? They said, you know, remember this is you know I can't remember how many years. But they're like you know twenty years before Natural Born Killers, and all of a sudden I was like wow, okay, you know, and this is 15 years before MTV. And that's, I, I mean, that, so the editing is, you know, in my you know, limited knowledge of editing, is just incredibly ahead of its time. And it, it is, when I first watched it, it took time to get used to the rhythm of it. And at first I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm writing a book about this. I'm not going to be able to watch it. You know, I'm like, I'm going to hate it. <laughs> like, I'm not going to understand it. It's just going to be this big, crazy, jumbled mess. But after about four or five minutes, and it, and it's kind of brilliant that way, you settle into it, and it becomes a really, you know, kind of, you, you fall into the rhythm of the film. And the storytelling works in that way, because you kind of, you know, at first you think, I can't do this. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm totally with it. I've got it. I'm following this. And all of that really jarring stuff becomes... An interesting way to tell a story. The the other thing, of course, is you know it's two movies. It's the movie, which is the documentary style movie, which is the story of Jake Hannaford and his birthday party and this last day of his life and the making of this film. And then there's the film Hannaford is making, which is a total contrast. So you have this really jarring cinema verite documentary style quick cut stuff, and then you have this kind of mock. Antonioni, 35 millimeter, big screen, nonsensical film that Hannaford is making. So you have the, so it's weird. Like, and it's, you know, somebody said to me, and I always thought this was great. They said, you know, he was making two different films and neither of them was in his own style. And that, that to me was fascinating because I think 
that really meant something. I think, you know, he was able to do things and, mm-hmm. and mask certain things by playing, by playing other characters. Like, you know, he filmed, obviously one of the big things people say is he filmed, you know, sexual content and eroticism for the first time in his life because he could do it by pretending he was Hannaford trying to make a movie like Antonioni. And that's so like Orson Welles, right? You know, just like the, you know, all the hidden stuff. And then, um, and then obviously the cinema verite stuff is, it's not, you know, it's not Citizen Kane. So yeah, it's really fascinating. And it was a really, you know, I, I found it also really fascinating that he, at this time of his life, you know, just, you know, he's always challenging himself. And I found that to be such a redeeming quality of his. He didn't want to do anything twice ever. You know, one of the things people frequently said that I, that I found fascinating was they said, you know, he would invent a problem, not just to create chaos, but he would invent a huge problem so that he could create his way out of it. And in that way, come up with a great solution. So he would invent an impossible situation and then have to figure it out. You know, and he might sit for two days making everybody watch him stew, you know, while they're in the middle of the Arizona desert until he came up with a solution. But, you know, that was, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to think of a guy being that creative and to have that being part of his process. So what do you think? After having read and researched and written about all this stuff, what do you think the chances are that it's actually going to happen? The people who are involved right now, if anybody can pull it off, I think it's these guys. One of the quotes I got about the early production was from uh, Mike Stringer, who did just a a little bit of everything on the film. Um, And he said, you know, if you came there for the right reasons, you got along just fine and Orson loved you. But if you were there for the wrong reason, he'd eat you alive. If you were there to meet Orson Welles, like you were gone. You know, if you were there, you know, for anything other than being there to help Orson Welles make a movie because it was important to help Orson Welles make a movie. And and I'm not saying that as, you know, as, as Orson being egotistical. I mean, that was just the ethos of it. I mean, you know, that's why people were there. They didn't care if they didn't get paid. They didn't care if they worked 20-hour days. They didn't care if they never saw their families. To them, it was like, this is just an important goddamn thing to do. That's the only approach that can work to getting the film completed. You you certainly can't be doing it for the money, because I don't think anybody's going to get rich off of it. And you can't be doing it for your ego, because I think that also is a huge disaster waiting to happen. Um, and, And I think, you know, there's this kind of way in which... Unless you're doing it for the right reasons, it's not going to work. So that said, I think these guys are the right guy. You know, Frank Marshall, Philip Rimsa, Jens Kuthner call, you know, they're there for the right reason. They think it's important to get Orson Welles, you know, even though it's not his last, last movie. I mean, it essentially is his last attempt to make, you know, the big comeback. They're there because it's important to get this movie made and, and it's not about their ego and it's not about making money. That said, I have no idea if this is going to come through and that, and that's no comment on that. You know, I hear really positive things that this is going to happen, but you know, as Joe McBride will tell you, you know, he's always, you know, said, you know, that he'll, he always envisioned himself going to the premiere, you know, with a Walker and um, you know, and then that every day, you know, that, that reality, you know, becomes, becomes more and more looming. 
the thing you hear you one thing I heard consistently from people who worked on the film was they said, you know, when I asked them about whether it would ever be finished, they'd say, I will believe this film is going to be finished when I am sitting in a theater and I've seen the last end credit run. Again, I think these guys are real competent and I think they're doing it for the right reasons. And if anybody can do it, they can. But, you know, far be it for me to go against the people who say, you know, hey, I'm not going to believe it. You know, the people who are there and they say, when I'm sitting in the theater and I see that last credit, it's going to be done. That said, I hope I hope they succeed. They're great guys. And I, I as we discussed, you know, it was exhausting just writing about it. What they go through trying to get this done, I think, is, is, is extraordinary. And they're doing it for, for film history, too. And I think that's important. Are you all geared up for a second edition if the film comes out? Second edition of the book? No. I mean, yes, of course. But, I mean, I, I you know, when I finished writing the book, you know, it, it, it ended at a certain point and I had written the story of the making of the movie. I had written the story of what happened to it afterwards. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I talked through with my editor, you know, I said, God, what happens if this movie gets made? You know, what happens? What are we going to do? You know, like what happens if this all works out two weeks before publication? And we kind of agreed, you know, Hey, we'll run whatever headline there is in variety you know, and make that the last page of the book, you know, you know, that says, Hey, you know, Orson Welles movie premiering at con because it's really, I mean, you know how you said, you know, you said it was exhausting to read about what happened. I told the story that I had to tell about it. And what happens now is just, it's great. If the, I, I would, I just want the movie to be finished, but I can't as a, as a writer and a journalist, I, I can't stick with the story from that perspective for the rest of my life. Cause I'll be sticking with it for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, there were really moments where I was writing the book and this is going to sound so asinine. So just take it for what it's worth. There are moments where I was like, okay, this is going to be just like the movie. This is never going to be finished. Cause every time you thought you were done or you thought you had something, you found something, you know, it's so typical of Orson Welles. You found something contradictory or you found something new. There was a real, and it, it, I think it helped in writing it in some ways, but it wasn't pleasant. You know, there were times where there was a real pervasive sense of like, I'm just going in a circle and this is going to go on forever. And this is going to be, I'm never going to finish this. And this is what is going to occupy the rest of my life while my family starves, you know, because I never finished the book and never got to move, <laughs> move on to anything else. You know, I kind of feel like, I've exhausted my ability to tell the story. I think that's what I would say about a second edition. I would certainly write an addendum, but the thought of, of, of writing new material about it, I, I'm, I'm so happy with the story. Not necessarily, I'm not saying this about the book, I'm just saying with the story. I feel like I got the story I wanted to get. And everything that's happening after this is kind of after the story I I, I wrote. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I completed my thing and, and I got out with my life. And we're back. Thanks to Josh Carp for coming on the show. And we have a link over where you can check out his book over at our website, projection-booth.com. 
the book is about a movie that hasn't come out yet, and this is a podcast about a movie that we haven't seen and hasn't come out yet. But, uh, gentlemen, what do you think uh, it'll mean if The Other Side of the Wind will come out? Uh, say it opened uh, magically, September, Toronto Film Festival, a limited run, art house. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, what then? Do you think that uh, people will be happy with it? Or do you think that maybe, as uh, I talked about before, something like um, Touch of Evil, where Touch of Evil was put out, obviously, after Orson Welles' death and that reconstituted version based on his memo. And uh, I heard some people go, yeah, I don't know if this is actually was his vision. You know, I don't think there's any way it can live up to the hype. I think that, in a way, it's a more important work unseen. And I think it's more important to his legacy that it remains unseen. Because it's a masterpiece that's unattainable. It's become this lore that there's no way, there's no way, it's just not possible for this film to be everything that everybody wants it to be. And that it may be a wonderful film and the scene that I've seen have been great. But, you know, and, and then I have to worry, I think we have to consider that with someone else cutting it, it's not really going to be what Wells wanted, as you said. And, you know, I, I don't think that it'll, it, it could ever live up to the hype, and I don't think it could ever truly be the film that Wells would have made himself. That is definitely one of the dangers I see as far as so much of the film was in Wells' head. You know, that blueprint died with him. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, it's all fine and good to have a, what was it, Rob, a 60-page memo that he wrote to uh, about uh, Touch of Evil. But at least with that, you had touch of evil as a standalone piece and then the memo and then the ability to go back in and try to see how the memo relates to touch of evil and then you know merch and everybody doing just an amazing job of recutting to those specifications as best that they possibly can i i can't even imagine what kind of book you would have to have what kind of bible size you know torah and talmud old and new testament everything in order to get the instructions for how to cut together other side of the wind i mean even seeing the little bits and pieces that we've seen seeing the you know 45 minutes 50 whatever you want to say amount of of screen time those pieces don't fit together that well. So what is there that connects those? Are there connectors and how are they going to know what to do with this thing? I mean, will they take it another step and maybe put another frame around the frame? You know, you've got the film within the film already. And then, you know, you could almost do the film around that and the, the struggle to put together other side of the wind. And it's yet another lost film kind of, you know, piecing together the lost film within the lost film. I mean, it's just, uh, it's like Russian dolls here. So, you know what that would look like to me? It would be like, and obviously this move, both of these movies are out and the, the, the first film was out. It would be like if you took hearts of darkness and then edited it into apocalypse. Now, like the really long version, like the five hour, can edit, you know, and you know, right. so it's like here's the documentary and the film, everything together, all in one place, and that just to me, uh, on one end, sounds like a total film nerdgasm, and at the other end, sounds horrific, <laughs> depending on the day. 
it, yeah, if you're putting together this film, you better have a fucking camera crew there to capture everything that goes on with the putting together of the film, the interviews, the talking heads, all this kind of stuff. You need to basically make the movie of Carp's book plus whatever has happened since Carp's book has come out, you know, I mean, since he sent it to the publisher kind of thing, you know, because he sent it to the publisher before the big article in the New York times last year, which kind of set off another firestorm and who knows, you know, there have been posters cited that, uh, that, that stuff's going to uh, happen. I mean, it's kind of funny. This podcast is dropping on May 6th, the hundredth birthday of Orson Welles. And if you go out, at least at the moment, when we're recording this, you go out to IMDB right now, it says release date for other side of the wind, May 6th. And I'm like, yeah, not going to happen. Definitely not going to happen. Not when they're calling me last week telling me they're starting to scan the negative. But will it ever happen? And would that be a good thing? Would you – my fear is kind of what you described, Rob, where it opens at some festivals – very few people get to see it at these festivals. It opens in an art house run, you know, and we film nerds around the globe go to see this. The ones who are in the know, the ones who are down with Wells, because not everybody is. I mean, it's kind of that select group, unfortunately. And I'm not trying to be elitist or anything. It's just kind of like too many people think of him as the before our time kind of guy or the guy who shows up at the end of the original Muppet movie. Like, or they just don't know who this guy is, you know, the, any Anybody who's under, you know, a certain age wouldn't know who Wells possibly is. So then what? It plays art houses for two weeks. And then what? Six months later, you get a Blu-ray release. Maybe it plays VOD. And then is that it? Does it go on the shelf and nobody talks about other side of the wind? It's not going to set the world on fire like Citizen Kane. It's not going to set the world on fire like all the discussions that we've had about this film that doesn't exist. So I almost think maybe it shouldn't come out. I do feel that way. And I feel like there's no way that even if it's done properly, and which it very well may be, there's no way that it can have the impact that it would have had in the 1970s. I mean, all of these things were ahead of their time. It's just like Citizen Kane today. If you tell somebody, this is quote-unquote the greatest film ever made, and they don't know much about film, they're not going to be bowled over because they've seen all of these techniques. And a lot of that is going to be the same thing. You know, they originated with Wells, or, you know, Wells honed them in his own way, but... They've been done to death now, and they've been done by other people. And I'm just afraid that the newness and the freshness of the whole thing is gone. Well, the other aspect of it, too, being like we were talking about as a satire, in a way, of those directors who went on to do those youth films of the late 60s, early 70s, unless you're film geeks like us, and you know what New Hollywood was, and why it was important and all of that stuff. Like that's probably just going to go over your head. Like you're not even going to understand what they're even referencing. I mean, there's part of me that just wants to see it just to see it. You know, it's like we've waited so long, it's been 40 years. Let's just see it. Like even if it's not as tight as it should be or exactly how Wells's perfect vision of it is because obviously he didn't have his hands on the editing. At the end, there's just part of me that that wants to see it like like an unfinished painting, 
like one of the more famous unfinished paintings that we have in America is that one of George Washington where you have the head of him, but like the bottom of it's not finished, but they still put it up and people take a look at it and you go, wow, that guy was a really good painter. He's a really nice portrait of George Washington. That's kind of how I feel about it is it may be rough around the edges, but I still want to see it. I still want to experience it in some manner, even if it's not going to be pristine and perfect to what exactly the artist wanted you to see. Yeah, no doubt. I want to see it. I, I do want to see it. I'm not, you know, I, I don't don't misunderstand me. I'd love to see it. You know, after all these years, so many people's hopes and dreams have been pinned to this movie. But, you know, I mean, I, I do worry that it's not going to be the pure version. But you're right. I, as a film geek, I would give anything to see even some crazy truncated version of this. Even some of the people that are in the cast of the film, you know, it would have been such a big deal seeing, you know, Mazursky and Jaglum and Bogdanovich and Hopper and all these guys, Claude Chabrol, all in one film. Whereas now it's like, you know, Oh, I, that guy was in the Sopranos. Oh, and, and so was that guy. And try to find, you know, five people that know who Henry Jaglum is, you know, no <laughs> offense to Mr. Jaglum, but it's just like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. You know, it's just kind of crazy. The thing that's amazing about this film, when you look at the cast and you look at all those people, is these are people who love this man, and that's what's amazing. Like, like they loved him either on a personal level, but they a, a lot of them came to that love on the personal level because of the art, because of what he did before then, and became you know acolytes. Uh, they became followers and and wanted to know more and some of them actually had Orson live at their place for a while and all of that stuff. I mean, there's, there's all of these like interesting connections when you get into it, which I know the average, you know, even if you're an art film goer, uh, it may not get all that. But I mean, for me, this is, it's like the Super Bowl or something. Like if this comes out, I'm going to be just like, ready and ready to go. Excited. Take a break and play a preview for next week's show. artist but it hasn't been working out too well and here is your gun what i've never used a gun before in my life there's a hunger in man's soul that cannot be satisfied by food listen kiddo don't you think it's time you buckled down and did something with your life i can get you into the columbia art school no thanks i have to do it my way we never cleaned it out and no chance well you interested yes i'll take it how much so i've been working a long time to achieve a status as an artist and Paris they treated me better be going to the futaba there's a very very good conceptual installation life walk 5000 it's a german conceptual artist klaus wiener he's on a treadmill counting to a million 2024, We shall show you that New York City is a dream created by higher beings as a temporary lodging place in the earthly sojourn. Wow. 
But how do I know that this isn't a dream right now? spiritual networks in most of the great cities of the world but there is one place we haven't been able to do our work singing on a bus to the moon. Must have been all them women, Mr. Fisher. That's right, Modi May continues with a look at Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever. We'll be joined by Mr. Schiller, Lauren Tom, Leila Nabuski, and Michael Streeter, the author of Nothing Lost Forever, a book about Mr. Schiller's work. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Andrew Rausch. Andy, the last time we talked to was for our Orgy of the Dead episode. What have you been up to lately, sir? I had a major heart surgery. So I've just been rebounding from that, but uh, I've got several books in there, and uh, among them, uh, the uh, Ed Wood book is finally coming out, which I co-wrote with Charles E. Pratt, Jr. The name of that book is The Cinematic Misadventures of Ed Wood, and that is available through Bear Manor and being released in hardcover May 16th, I believe. And then uh, I've got another book of essays called Trash Cinema, and uh, it's got an essay by Rob St. Mary in it. How can you go wrong with that? Um, you can't. So you there's can't. that, and uh, I, I just finished the script for uh, my novel, Elvis Presley's CIA Assassin, which hopefully we'll see come to fruition one of these days. But that's been my life. Sounds good. Well, we're looking forward to those books. I mean, that Ed Wood book, and uh, of course, uh, the book I'm in. Thank you so much for adding me in on that, and uh, thanks for so much for adding in on the show, and thanks everyone for listening, and Hope uh, you don't find this month's program a little too frustrating as we cover all these movies that are either difficult or impossible to see because they haven't been finished or they've been, you know, held back in some way. You know, but then again, what other podcast kind of has the guts to do that? You know, we believe in you. We believe in the uh, theater of the mind and also cinema. So we know that uh, you're going to enjoy these uh, conversations about these films. And if you have the guts also to continue to listen, which you're hearing my voice right now, we ask you to go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and uh, tell your friends, you know, to check us out either through social media or maybe old-fashioned email or send a letter to your mom and tell her that she's got to listen to this. Whatever. We just want to say thank you so much for doing that. And uh, don't leave us lingering in the vaults forever.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.